Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. RFM, how are you? I'm great tonight, Mr. Real. How are you doing? I can't hear you through all the applause. What was that? Yeah, tone it down out there, will you? We're trying to talk here. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing so good, my friend. Uh, just want to remind folks that uh, we have a t-shirt contest going on right now, and there have been uh, lots of submissions. Um, I think we probably hit the deadline where we can't take any more. Um, but we are filtering through the last uh, kind of three or four finalists. Um, we've reached out to, to each of them, and uh, we are hoping next week we will present those T-shirts and give our uh, audience a chance to see them. There's some really cool ones, aren't there? You like them? I, I am surprised by the level of talent we have amongst our viewership. Yeah, there was probably seven, eight, nine that we that we liked. We kind of went back and forth, but there are three or four that kind of made the final running and uh, we're going to have a conversation this week uh, and we'll go from there, but next week that should be announced. And then we wanted to mention too, folks, we're really excited uh, to get into start uh, to start releasing some TikTok videos. We've done a little bit of that within the channel. Uh, I think we have one Mormonism live TikTok, but we wanted to extend an invitation to you, the audience, when you hear a really cool soundbite, when you uh, see something really catchy being said, whether it's funny, whether it's entertaining, whether it is uh, deeply important to the conversation of Mormonism, if as our fans, if you guys want to create uh, TikToks uh, and send them to us, we would love to put them on our channel, uh, on our TikTok channel, and we'd love to to share the the things you guys are coming up with. So, uh, any thoughts there, RFM? No, I think that would be a great idea. I'd love to see. I mean, I know we have so much talent out there. That'd be wonderful if they could, uh, if somebody out there or some people out there would be interested in doing a few TikToks since it's all Greek to me. Yeah. And you just released a show. I see Radio Free Mormon number 254. Man, you're 254 episodes in. General yes. Conference Lightning Round, October 2022. 20, uh, and I've already seen, because it's released on our YouTube channel and it's released on all the podcast apps, I've seen some of the comments come in and people are uh, commenting that they they were laughing uh, quite a bit through this. So I don't know what the funny line was or lines were, but uh, it sounds like it was quite humorous. Yes. Well, you're betraying the fact that you have not listened yourself, Mr. Real. What's up with I that? Haven't. I haven't. That was the word general conference. I got like the shakes and I just didn't tune in. So by the way, a little behind the scenes thing that people may not know, may not have noticed is that I changed the title between the time I recorded it and the time I put it up. It was General Conference Digest, and that's what I say after the testing one, two, three. But then I thought, that's boring. I mean, General Conference is boring enough. Why put another boring word after it? And I thought, lightning round. That's what mm. we'll call it. So there is a discrepancy between the title and what I say the title is. And that's gotcha. how the sausage I, gets made, folks. You cover all, the entire weekend of General Conference in 30 minutes? Uh, 60. Technically 60 57, minutes. but yeah. Wow. I, I could almost watch General Conference again if it was just 60 minutes. 
Five, session, five sessions, 10 hours, 36 talks in under 60 minutes. Awesome. And then uh, Mormon Discussion is going to release tomorrow. We're going to do a live show on plagiarism in Joseph Smith's Mormonism. Uh, and we're going to talk at length about uh, some of the uh, sources that are alleged to have been contributed to the Book of Mormon and other parts of Mormonism. Uh, and, and we're going to see if those things hold up. So we're going to have a little fun tomorrow as well. So I'm excited for that. That sounds great. So basically, you're saying that Elder Bednar is just part of a long and established tradition in Mormonism. Um, we'll see. Oh, well, you know, if we had Elder Bednar on the show, he could give us a how-to course on plagiarism. Yeah, I don't, I don't think David's going to be coming on here, and I don't think uh, he'll let uh, Susan come on either. No, but speaking of Elder Bednar, yeah, segue coming. <laughs> we are so excited to have on the show um, Tyler. We did part one a couple weeks ago about his chat with Elder Bednar in the LAX airport. And that was so well received. I mean, that is got to be one of our most popular shows that we've done. So we're excited to have him back. There was a lot of clamoring to have Tyler back and hear the rest of the story. So can we bring him on? Is he in there? Is he in the green room, nope. Bill? Here yes. We go. You'll unmute yourself there, Tyler. Tyler, are you muted, my friend? All right. There we go. Yeah. Awesome. You have no idea See, how much not I like just saying you and that. Me, RFM. I know. I, I love catching somebody else when it's not me being muted. I love it. By the I mean, way, I just want to say some of the some of the t-shirt submissions had to do with us being muted, and those were hilarious. I don't know that any of those made the finals. No offense to those folks, but that that was quite hilarious, and and we had quite a chuckle as we were sharing those with each other. So I don't want to re be remembered for that, though. It's not like it's no, something right. I want to have on my tombstone. No, right. Or your fans t-shirt. <laughs> I will finally be muted at that point though. So perhaps it would be a proposal. <laughs> Maybe I'll have that etched in when you go. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'll be speaking at your service, pal. <laughs> With my cholesterol levels, that's likely. Good. Okay. So I've got something to look forward to. Anyway, we need to get to the show tonight because there is a part two. I think it may be a little bit less than the part one, but in the part one, um, let me see here. We went over a number of things with Tyler's. Tyler met um, Elder Bednar serendipitously. This is the thumbnail for the people who didn't watch the first episode or have forgotten about it. And he had about a 40-minute conversation with Elder Bednar, mano a mano, in which there was a lot of interesting back and forth going on. And uh, Tyler was able to construct the conversation in such a way as to continue to have Elder Bednar talk with him. By which I mean, uh, if Elder Bednar started to seem uncomfortable with some of the questions being asked or the way the conversation was going, Tyler would change directions and go off with something else. So he wouldn't try and put him on the spot. Although I think by the end you did. And that's when he called the game. But we'll get to that, right? So I want to say a little bit about you, Tyler. And I don't know that we said it before, which is that you are a scientist. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's a definition that I'll go by. Yeah, back off, man. I'm a scientist. <laughs> yeah. You, you have your Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, is that right? Right. And your Master of Science and a PhD as well. Yeah, yeah. Is it true you've published over 40 scientific articles? Yeah, it's about that, yeah. About 40 articles or so. So I've been really into the research and things. 
Oh my gosh. And you've been cited over 500 times by other academics and their papers. Yeah, which is really exciting for, for me, but but I'm in an area of research that is, you know, kind of a groundbreaking area, I guess. So so I'm, I that's why I have so many citations, not just that I'm I'm not like some amazing scientist. I'm just kind of lucky where I'm at. Don't give me that false humility, mister. It won't wash with me. <laughs> so um, but there was um, in addition to the first episode being, I think, one of the most popular we've ever done, there were also I would say more comments than usual that were somewhat critical. And there were a lot of questions about how it was that you uh, could remember everything word for word, even though you said in the episode that this isn't word for word, but this is a best reconstruction that you could do. Um, we, we showed the picture. Do we still have that picture of Elder Bednar at the LAX airport? Maven. Hopefully we do. Yes, we do. And this is a picture that you took. Uh, what happened to Elder Bednar's face? Are we blurring it to protect his identity? <laughs> he looks better. It's nice. Ouch, that hurts. <laughs> oh, and that's his wife right in front. And for some reason, I'm better able to tell it is she now that I can see sort of the her glasses there. She has distinctive frames, I think. Yeah. So Elder Bednar's there. He's talking. He's looking right here at this other GA who's with him, who may or may not be Brad Wilcox. Correct? <laughs> yeah, it may have been, but we're not going to say for sure. I don't know. Right. And by the way, there was another thing that we wanted to bring up, which is that. Um, well, I, we I texted. So I was sitting there yeah. and I saw him and then I, I texted you yeah. and said, hey. Um, Elder Bernard is just a little in front of me. He's not busy. I'd like to, I'm going to talk to him. Do you have any, any, you know, thoughts or questions, you know, for me? And so I know. And I, I hadn't heard from you since January, pretty much. And all of a sudden I'm hearing from you and I thought you were kidding or either you're kidding or you're at some, uh, priesthood leadership conference where he's up there giving an I am scripture kind of speech. And I did not know. So I just, I took it kind of lightly at first. And we have those contemporaneously recorded text messages. Which, which I, I think it's important phone. to show just, just if there are people who maybe, I guess, doubt that this meeting or something ever took place, then perhaps this adds a layer of credibility that, you know, hey, here's a picture that I took. Here are some text messages I sent to you before and after, you know, the conversation. Hey, I think Elder Bednar's face just got a little less blurry. I think it's just taken a while for it to load or something. And now it's blurry again. Okay. Well, anyway, that's the picture. And uh, do we have the text messages between Tyler and yours truly? I think Maybe Maven's coming on Maven board. I see her screen. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, there she yeah, is. I'm pulling them up. Sorry. It'll take me just a just a second. It's making me like re-log into my slides. I okay. Well, Maven has been doing a great job on producing this show, coming up with different uh, graphics. And so we've got the picture. We're going to have the text messages. Well, and then and after maybe, that, we'll have some talk about conference. this, this other part too. So what, what I did is after I spoke with Elder Bednar, again, I immediately um, took notes about, so, okay, we'll go ahead. Well, there we are. And by the way, you want to read your part because yeah. this is from Tyler. Uh, it says to Tyler, cause it's from my phone. That's where these text messages came from. It was Sunday, September 18th. It's 11.10 a.m. And that's probably my time. Yeah, but that would be 
that would have been your time anyway if you were an LAX, right? Pacific right. Standard. Okay, right. so go ahead with yours where you say I'm a few feet. Yeah, I'm a few feet away from. Uh, I'm a few feet away from away from. So I'm excited. I don't even know how to you know text right. Apparently, uh, Elder Bednar. I want to ask him a question. Any thoughts? And so me thinking you're just kidding or whatever. I said, how much do you pay for that haircut anyway? That was my suggested question. You didn't take me up on it. You didn't use that question, unfortunately. I did think about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you well, said, LOL. That's I said in my next, I said, he doesn't know because <laughs> I was joking that he, that was his answer was that. Um, but, but you can see the time, right? And, uh, and 1 26 p.m. So the time difference is the conversation I had with them, which was about 40 minutes. And then immediately. Okay, so the conversation would have gone from 11.10 to around 11.50. Uh, correct. Yeah. Well, around. Well, no, no, not from 11.10. So first, I, because I'm waiting for you to respond, I actually texted a couple other people as well. Um, to, just to see if I get anyone to say anything, um, including John DeLynn. Um, we can show those messages as well if you wanted. Um, and, and, and then I waited and then I just kind of waited for probably 20 minutes or so before I, I want to make sure he was really not busy. And I wanted to maybe contemplate a little bit what type of questions I wanted to ask. I don't know, maybe it was only 10 minutes, but, but it wasn't immediately after, um, and then when you didn't, when, you know, after this response, then I went and I talked with him and there was probably around a 40 minute conversation. And then I immediately uh, came and I wrote down some quick notes to you first. Um, and you can even see, right? 45. Also here I'm saying 45 minute conversation. So I thought it was 40 minutes, but okay. So 40, 45 minute conversation. Here are quick notes. Um, and confirmed that he hasn't seen apostles, that he and the apostles haven't seen Christ, but are only witnesses to the name of Christ. Uh, I asked why so many members think apostles have seen him. He shook his head and said they are interpreting what is said in the way they want to hear it. We don't know what the change of the skin color in the Book of Mormon means. Who don't, we don't, which is who, but we don't have to believe the Book of Mormon is historical. He doesn't know the history about the Negro doctrine of pre-mortal life or that it was really stated as a doctrine the 2015 policy of exclusion hey, tyler tyler for just a second do you want to go ahead and repeat what you said last time about why you used the word negro doctrine yeah thank you yeah because i don't want to be offensive here remember this is the the way the church I'm, I'm just using the same words that the church used back in back in the day um specifically referring to the 1943 um first first presidency letter was it 43 49 yeah but who's counting yeah first presidency letter um where they where they, where they specifically said that this uh the you know, with regards to the negro for example and so um i was just putting that in there and so sorry if it comes a little brash <laughs> it's not not intended um Okay, and then the 2015 policy of exclusion versus being rescinded are both revelation, are not mutually exclusive because it was for a different time, even if only three years apart, like all gather to Zion versus stay where you are. Um, he doesn't seem to know the history of plural marriage and emphasize some were ceilings, not marriages, and a few of, there's only a few were, uh, were ceilings or marriages, oh yeah, and only a few of those were ever consummated. 
I also did some spiritual epistemology on, on, on him, and he said, some Baptists are guided by the light of Christ to believe their truth, but are now blind by it and aren't receptive to the missionaries. When I pressed him about what makes their certainty invalid if their method, including the Snufferites, uh, which he knows all about, uh, believing is the same, he, he was initially stumped, then said, uh, despite them being certain in their feelings, they are deceived, and it was a false spirit, but they don't know but they don't know it. So I said, how do we know we aren't? He, he said, we just have to trust that we have the authority. And we're going to get a little bit more detail of that because, of course, that's a, it's a rather lengthy and involved synopsis, but it was right after you'd had the conversation with him. And we've gone over in more detail. By the way, my understanding is, is that you talked about this to a number of people, and shortly thereafter, you reduced it to writing, and you took some time to do it in order to uh, capture as best you could the substance right. of what it was that you talked about and what Elder Bednar said. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, I reflected on this on the way, you know, rehearsing it to myself on the way home, right? And and I rehearsed it to other people um, once I got home and the next day, and then I wrote everything down very clearly. And it might sound like I have this, you know, amazing photographic memory or something. I could just recount this. First off, I'm not saying that it's word for word, um, but I am saying that I think it's a, a valid transcript of what really happened. And I fully believe that if Elder Bednar saw just the transcript, not our interpretation necessarily, that he would put a stamp of approval because this is really true to what he said. And it's and it's not like I think we have to realize that this is not like I'm 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 talking about an area that I don't have very much knowledge about. Like I'm talking about some politics in Iran or or something that that, that maybe I, I don't really know very much about. I am intimately familiar with the gospel conversation of Mormonism and its history and and everything. I've been. This is why this whole the history and and, and church stuff has been you know quite difficult for me uh, as well as I know all of you. I mean, actually, I'm in my office, but a lot of these books, I'll just show you. But if you if you see these books all across, these are primarily church history. I mean, church church books that I've had, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, not like Bill Reels. He has a lot more, but but I have my. I don't know that I do, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see your bookshelf too, but I, I'm just I'm just saying that. You know, this is something like the second anointing, the Adam God doctrine, like all this stuff. I, I studied this stuff back when I was in high school before I went on my mission. And I felt like I could I reconcile a lot of this stuff. So I just want to point out that this is I have a very, um, I guess, working knowledge of this stuff. And so it's very easy for me to re recount, um, you know, and, and basically recite you know, exactly what was talked about. Again, not exactly, but, you know, at least valid to what uh, the conversation was. Yeah, it's very clear from the transcript that you know your stuff and you know it better than Elder Bednar knows his stuff, even though he's the leader of this yeah. stuff. By the way, I was going to say that with all those books behind you, it looks like you're in Carrie Shirt's home. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go that far. Uh, the Backyard Professor, uh, he's, he's, I'm glad he's had joined us, um, at least for the last one. Is he on yet? Maybe he'll come. I have no idea. I try not to look. <laughs> but but I did I, I did want to say uh, thank you for a lot of the people who did make some great comments. You know, I, I saw some funny ones. I remember like it was like this like Debbie and um uh let's see. Uh, I don't know. There, there's a couple other ones here that I I, don't know, I remember the names, Garth, I think, and um Anthony, 
uh, Amy. Anyway, I just want to say thank you for, for your kind comments. This has been a little bit difficult for me to put my face publicly on this type of uh, venue, um, as you can understand. Um, and and it's, it's a little bit, I guess, challenging in, in that way. So I just, I, I appreciate um, everyone's kind comments and understanding of this. Can I ask you something before we go back to the conversation with Elder Bednar? I would say there was a lot of comments that were wondering where you're coming from, what side are you on, as if there have to be sides, but where are you coming from? Because that was a huge mystery to people. And I know that anybody who asked me that directly, I responded and told them, yeah, that's part of the deal. That's part of the deal that's going on here. And one of the reasons that, um, well, I'll let you explain it if you want to, as much as you want to. Yeah, well, I... I think um, it, 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 it is a difficult thing to, to, I guess, express in words in the best way, right? Um, I think, again, when we look at the data, the, lot, the, 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 the science, the logic and everything, um, I, I know exactly where I stand. Um, but then when we look at all the spiritual experience and everything, and even I mentioned, you know, I, I was not lying when I said I still felt this, this, that's, spirit that holy ghost and i'm referring to this the same way we used to always feel it to feel it when i was with elder bednar and so there is still some of that 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 is inside of me um i guess more of just respect but i also have it's interesting because i have on the one hand i have respect while at the same time i hold some disrespect or contempt you know even for for some of the things that have been said and done and so i've i i have uh, a lot of close friends and family who are still really strong in the church and so I'm really trying to be respectful to to them and and to not be as critical or one way or the other and just try to be more just objective, more dispassionate. And in my conversation with other Bednar, um, I, I almost felt sometimes a little bit dishonest because I was presenting myself as a much stronger believer than perhaps I, I guess I really am in the, in the literal sense. But at the same time, the, the feelings um, were were true in terms of um, how, how I feel or how I have felt and things. And so it's kind of these, it's kind of a very difficult area, but but I'm sure the audience can, I guess, understand that and, and you know, having experienced a lot of this uh, themselves. So that's, I guess that's really where I'm coming from. The Elder Bednar, yes, it comes much more from a strong believer. Um, and then myself, yeah, I've, I've been deconstructing uh, Mormonism um, if, in terms of a, a literal belief for the past, I don't know, six or seven years. But I've been, I've been, I've known a lot of this history for a very long time, but I, 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 I didn't see, I guess, the real problems until the past two years. Yeah, and I think that when we get into the conversation, part two, which we're going to do right now, uh, that's enough introduction, I think. But I think that the audience will be able to get a good idea from your questions as to it, where you to, stand. Just to say too, I mean, there were a lot of years that I compartmentalized and presented myself as a faithful believer, helping people stay in the church, while there were parts of my brain that also sort of knew it didn't add up. And I think there are pieces inside our brain that are thoughts in multiple directions. I think we we contradict ourselves in our, inside our heads all the time. Yeah, it's really, you go from full-on believer, boom, to full-on non-believer. Yeah. 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 Do we have, to, we got up to the place where you were going to start talking to Elder Bednar about plural marriage in your conversation. Yeah. So, hey, Bill, Bill, yeah. can you read Elder Bednar? Because the B stands for Bednar as well as Bill, 
Or do you want, right. there's Maven. Do you want to read for Elder Bednar, Maven? I would not like to read for Elder Bednar this time. I'm happy for Bill to do it. Okay. I'm putting myself at the bottom so that I can, you guys can all stay up and the comments will look good. And then I'll chime in here and there. Okay, great. Okay, then I'll start. Um, so so we just barely transi transitioned from me trying to explain why the the, the Godhead change, you know, could, could have been a line upon line, precept on precept idea. Um, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Dan, Dan Vogel. I have his, this book, The Line Upon Line, and I read his essay, this is years ago, defining the contemporary Mormon concept of God, um, or the earliest Mormon concept of God, I mean. And that, anyway, that's kind of what I was trying to help with Elder Bednar and this idea of line upon line. Anyway, I saw him in the chat, and so I just wanted to say, Man, I, I appreciate you so much. Um, okay, so moving on with this. So I said, yeah, it's just this idea of line upon line, precept upon precept. I mean, like plural marriage might be a good example. Joe Smith clearly knew he was to restore something and somehow unite people and families together. But the implication of this revelation may not have been clear. I mean, any reasonable objective person, when they look at the history of plural marriage, would find some of the practices unethical, such as him marrying teenagers. Boy. Most people don't. Oh, most I'm sorry. I'm don't. sorry. I'm just loving the how you're slipping that in there. You shouldn't interrupt an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, RFM. Yes, I'm sorry. Zach, you should stand. I've entered the room. Do not come between a Nazgul and his prey. Most people don't understand the plural marriage with Joseph Smith. They see it as marriages when they weren't. They were marriages and they were sealings, which are different. There were marriages and there were sealings, which are different. We tend to think of a marriage the same as how it is with me and my wife, but there are also ceilings which were different. Yes, I know that Brian Hells has attempted to make distinctions between marriages and ceilings in, in this way and that they were different. But it's just clear to me that the Lord didn't clearly explain all the details from the beginning, but it was line upon line. The marriages that Joseph Smith did have, very rarely were they ever consummated. The like, how does he weren't. know that? Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. The ceilings weren't, <laughs> but even of the few marriages, very few of them were consummated from what the evidence shows. Does he? Did he read the Temple Lot case? It's hard to say what he has read and what he hasn't. One would presume that he is at least marginally familiar with the contents of the Gospel Topics essays. <clears throat> but, but it also seems that he... He is admitting and 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 he is admitting or at least accepting the fact that he, that at least some of them were consummated. And again, yes. I think it just, the way he was talking, it sounds like, you know, Brian Hale's a take on things. That is Brian Hale's all the way. And the funny thing about that is that, of course, um, well, trying to distinguish between ceilings and marriages, which is what he's going to do. Actually, I'll wait and make my comments at the end of this. Go ahead with your great conversation. Bill as Elder Bednar, Tyler playing the part of Tyler. Okay. Yes, although I can see how it can be confusing when the revelation in DNC 132 clearly says that these women must be virgins, yet he also married women who were already married. And so he didn't follow. Again, that is the error. You are talking about marriages, and what Joseph Smith did was ceilings, and very few of the marriages were ever consummated. At the time, there was this idea that to be saved, you had to seal yourself to the prophet. So everyone was trying to get sealed to the prophet. 
It wasn't until Lorenzo Snow that this practice was changed, and he said, we won't do that anymore, but instead seal ourselves to our ancestors. And now Tyler's going to very gently correct an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who got his history of his own church wrong. <laughs> I said, right, you're talking about the practice of the law of adoption, and I guess it was Wilfred Woodruff who made that change. So people need to understand that things were practiced differently back then compared to now, and marriages and sealings are different from each other. Okay, now, can I, can I say a couple things? Oh my gosh. He tries to distinguish between sealings and marriages. And in this context, it strikes me as just trying to change the word and thinking that because you've changed a word, you somehow won the argument. It reminds me of the old joke by Abraham Lincoln, which is how many... Excuse me. <clears throat> How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? The answer is four. Calling his tail a leg doesn't make it one. Wow. That went Sorry. over like a level. <laughs> I didn't know if there was more like you were going to say, but. I was pausing was for the audience laughter I that I anticipate was happening it. on the other side. There we go. <laughs> well, Cheryl Bruno made a comment about maybe that's not necessarily a Brian Hell's take on plural marriage, it's more of a Snuffrite or Price view. But my understanding was this, don't the Snuffrites pretty much um, are saying that Joe Smith didn't even practice plural marriage? Yeah, that's becoming a, an adopted concept by right. many of them, I think. But Brian Hell's is saying, no, that here are select. I mean, I have his books here, and, and he's the, he, he goes through the evidence okay, these are the ones that we know are consummated, these ones you know, weren't. And so anyway, I guess that's my understanding, but maybe I'm getting that wrong, but from my understanding of him. Right. And how on earth does Elder Bednar think he knows which marriages of Joseph Smith were consummated? He's a and he is probably following Brian Hales here because I've read Brian Hales and that's what he says. And, he, and Brian Hales was likely the primary author of the plural marriage essay. But my issue is that once you have said very rarely, right, very rarely were these marriages consummated, right? You've given away the farm. Okay, so let's say Joseph Smith consummated only three of his plural marriages and not the other 30 or so. How is that a better position for the apologist than if Joseph consummated them all? Yeah, and, and on top of that, by the way, you have prophets just after him. So if you say, okay, we're going to exempt Joseph Smith from whatever the rules are. The problem is the very next three guys do the exact same thing we're trying to pin Joseph Smith down for. Yeah, this is like the old story that's attributed to Winston Churchill, though in researching it, apparently it's not clear who actually said this, but it's a great story nonetheless. I like to think of it as Winston Churchill saying it at a state dinner. He was seated next to an attractive lady at the table with all these other dignitaries, and Churchill says to this lady who's seated next to him, would you sleep with me for a million pounds? Now, I can't imagine Churchill actually saying that, but would you sleep with me for a million pounds? And the lady giggles and says, oh, prime minister, of course I would. And Churchill says, how about doing it for five pounds? And the lady gets indignant and says, why, what do you think I am? And Churchill says, I think we've already established that. Now we're just haggling over the price. <laughs> um. And that's what I think of when I hear this argument. Well, he didn't consummate all of them. And in fact, he only consummated a few of them. Well, we've already established what Joseph Smith is. Now we're just haggling about the number. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, he makes this comment that everyone's trying to seal themselves to Joseph Smith, but the historical evidence 
is that Joseph Smith was trying to seal himself to all these women. Yeah, he it doesn't confused. go the other direction. He gets confused in his history, his timeline again. My understanding is it's after Joseph Smith dies that we start getting into this idea of adoption and everybody wanting to seal themselves to Joseph Smith as part of this dynastic idea of exaltation. But while Joseph Smith was alive, it was a very different animal, this plural marriage. And people weren't trying to seal themselves to him at that point. Instead, he's going out and he is soliciting women to be married or sealed to him. I don't know of any story about women approaching Joseph Smith while he's alive and asking for him to marry them. I'd be surprised fact, if that they're begging for it not to happen. Yeah. There are some of those, aren't there? Maven? Right. This is one of the things that bothers me the most. And it's just going back to um in a way victim blaming, but also just as um as you guys have pointed out before, um, just blaming the members of the church for getting things wrong when it's there's always a reason why. If this had been happening, it's not that members of the church just got this idea into their heads all of a sudden and then we're just yeah, like forcing themselves on Joseph against what he knew, what was revealed doctrine. That's not how this works, you know, but it's just it's so much easier without any information backing it at all to just blame the members. And so yeah, that's um, like when we get this argument that it was the women just like throwing themselves at Joseph, there's literally nothing there for that. And yet it's In such fact, common yeah. apologetic. It's, it's abusive to imply otherwise. Right. And then I just kind of back to, um, I guess, what difference does it make? Because for the women that weren't already married to um, to husbands, um, these, you know, the single women weren't allowed to get married to other men with one exception. And that's when um, I forget who it was. I'm sure the chat will help me out. Um, but I know there was one uh, Joseph was sealed to that I think Emma was getting a little too close to sniffing out. So there was a sham marriage with a man after the fact, um, but it was a known sham marriage. And so that's the only exception I know of. But anyway, the point is, I, you know, Helen Mark Kimball, she didn't remarry until after Joseph was dead. And this was in her journal. She's I'm, I've, everyone knows she's the one that was 14. Um, she was a kid. She wanted to go to dances. She wanted to hang out with her peers, but she was not allowed to anymore. She didn't have any of the distinction of being a, a married woman and yet um, had to be shuttered away in the house and basically live as one uh, secretly and, and not be able to enjoy or do any of the things that uh, her friends were doing. So, Yeah, going from memory, I think that was Newell K. Whitney's daughter with the sham marriage. That, yeah, um, I honestly don't remember off the top of my head. So I haven't seen it pop up in the, in the chat. I, I thought for sure, like someone would really quickly, there but anyway, the sham one with the Partridge sisters and, uh, right. and Emma was definitely into sniffing out others such as Flora Woodworth. Yeah. I just, I know a marriage was set up by Joseph Smith between one of his secret wives and a man and, you know, a public marriage. And that was to just get Emma off the trail. And it was known by all parties that this was not a real marriage. So I don't think yeah. they consummated that one, uh, like the actual marriage uh, either. I, I think Joseph did consummate that ceiling. Anyway, it's just, it's just the annoying, I guess just all the normal annoying drivel that an apostle I think should know better, especially, I guess even if he did know better, like would he have said anything or would he have hoped that just by, um, you know, 
pulling out these tired lines, that that would be good enough for a lot of the average members and and being backed by it coming from an apostle, um, you know, a member would be less likely, depending on, how, you know, how faithful they are to push back on that. So it seems to have more seal of approval, especially in the moment, like, like he is with Tyler here. That's it. Yeah, I know you're about to go on to your street epistemology that you did on uh, Elder Bednar as far as he would allow you. I got to tell you, my impression so far of Elder Bednar is that he's strong on dogmatic assertions, but he's weak on his knowledge of LDS church history. And sometimes I get the impression that he uses dogmatic assertions in order to try and cover up his lack of knowledge about the church. What do you think, Tyler? Um, you know, that's probably a fair assessment. And I, I guess without being critical, um, well, I, I think it's a fair assessment. I'll, I'll put it at that. I, and I feel like maybe that's why I couldn't push him on some of these issues more because he, once he, he makes a dogmatic statement, I don't want to necessarily try to correct him in these areas because then it makes it uncomfortable and, and then it's going to end the conversation. And I did want to, I wanted to go through this more. Um, I mean, if you notice, I said DNC 132 says they should, they should be virgins. Well, he doesn't address that. He, he misses my question, right? And, and, and then he tries to say, well, they weren't consummated. But I'm saying, but the DNC 132 says the entire point, in fact, the only scriptural allowance for plural marriage is to have seed. <clears throat> and so when somebody tries to bring this argument, well, you know, that Joe Smith didn't have any children, well, then I think two things. One, then they directly violated God's command for the only allowance God's given. And number two, as Bill said, what about all the other prophets and apostles? You know, how, how is this somehow exonerating Joseph Smith? But yet, you know, Lorenzo Snow, you know, he married a 17-year-old, you know, teenager when he was 40-something and had, you know, six children or something with her. We, we see the same thing. And so it's almost like when you when, when Elder Bernard tries to exonerate Joseph Smith, at the same time, he is incriminating everybody else. Mm. And, and, and I wanted to push him on that. And then to Maven's point, again, it's, you know, marriage is not just about consummation, you know, right? It's, it's, you know, having that relationship with somebody. And, and, and so I feel like there's so many levels on this that we didn't really get to go into that it would have, would have liked to. Um, but, but again, I didn't because he did make some rather dogmatic statements yeah. He didn't have the, the knowledge, the depth of knowledge that um, would allow us to even have a conversation. And so, yes, that's why I decided to move on. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the doctrine of plural marriage was given by the Lord loin upon loin. <laughs> Try and say that three times fast. Yeah. All right. Something Are we ready? Funny business, huh? Oh, I think so. I think we better move on quickly after that one. By the way, Tyler, you do some spiritual epistemology, but it's really street epistemology about the church. Uh, can you just say in a thumbnail what the heck street epistemology is? Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure the audience will correct me, um, uh, but my, my understanding um, uh, is basically epistemology is the method that we're using to, to come up to to the methods we're using to believe what we're going to believe basically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm saying spiritual epistemology because I'm trying to emphasize the, what is the evidence we're using or the methods we're using to have, to, to have our spiritual insights or beliefs or ideas. 
And, and so that's kind of the approach there. So it's not so much, you know, what are the specifics and the doctrines or the beliefs themselves that matters. It's simply what, what makes you feel that that is true? What, was the, what is the method you have used to come to that area, specifically on a spiritual level? Okay, so Tyler, let's see how you do with Elder Bednar and how he does with you. Once again, we'll have a have Tyler be Tyler and Bill be Elder Bednar. All right. Yes, I mean, it's all about following the confirmation and guidance of the Spirit. But let me ask, do you think it's possible for a wise, intelligent person of another faith tradition, like say Hinduism, to follow the certain rituals and requirements, avoiding certain foods, praying so often, and and interpret the blessing and the feelings that come to their life, feelings that we would call the fruits of the Spirit, and interpret this to mean that their faith, tradition, and beliefs are true? Oh, Hey, Elder Bednar, you're muted. Dang it. Yes, I suppose it happens all the time. People can be guided by the light of Christ, not the Holy Ghost, but the light of Christ, that eventually they may receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and be guided to do good things. Yes, but then how do you, how do we reconcile that uh, God essentially led these good people into a faith tradition that may actually prevent them from coming to the knowledge of our church? No, they still have a choice. In the South is a good example. Many are led by the light of Christ to the Baptist church, but then become so certain and convinced of their belief that they become blinded to more truth and won't listen to the missionaries. Hmm. Yes, I've seen that. Uh, so, so how do we explain that without blaming God? They still have their choice, but it's not God that is making them feel that they should listen to the missionaries. That's why we need the spirit of discernment, as it can be hard. Yes, I, I mean, it does beg the question with these great people who are so certain in their belief, given that... Uh, I don't even... Where was I here? I'm sorry. Um, who are so certain in their belief, given that being certain is more of a feeling and doesn't always correlate with accuracy. So if they used the same method to come to their beliefs and talk of the same feelings as we do, then how can we be certain about our beliefs? You see here at this point, I mean, you are pinning him against the wall in gym class and you're yanking down his jock strap. <laughs> You're no, leaving him not. with no place to go, as, as, as will be shown when Elder Bednar responds, because it seems like he's getting a little hot under the collar. But, but, but at the same time, I, like, it, it wasn't like I was trying to trap him. Like, this is a sincere question. If, yes. if anybody has an answer to this, I mean, I can logically, scientifically go through the history and stuff. And, and there's the, the, the issue with the Mormon church is so many things are scientifically falsifiable. And that is a stands in stark contrast to so many other religions. And, and so scientifically there's that, but then spiritually you have these same feelings. And so we're left to trust in our feelings at the same way trust is trusting you know, somebody else is going to trust their feelings. Well, if anybody is going to have an answer to how can we differentiate or what's the difference, it would be an apostle. So I just wanted to say, like, I'm, I'm really not trying to trap him. I'm really trying to give, trying to ask the question because if there is an answer, if there really is a method, I, I want to know. Okay, fair enough. So you, you put the question to him that if 
they if if Baptist or any other non-Mormon uses the same method that Mormons use to come to their beliefs and talk of the same feelings as we do, then how can we be certain about our beliefs if we're using the same methodology or epistemology to come to a, a belief or a certainty or whatever it is that we have about our own religious beliefs? And here's what Elder Bednar says in response. Oh, can I jump in real quick? Oh, please. Um, I just wanted to say I it's simple. And it's what I believed for a really long time. And so I, I can understand where Bednar's coming from with this, but I feel like, um, I don't know, really early on, I had experiences that would call this into question. So I, even when I was at a place where maybe I wouldn't, um, um, I guess, I don't know, I, I, I guess I, it seems juvenile to me and very simplistic um, because again, I just, even as a really, really strong, strong believer, it, this, this idea that it's, it's just their choice is something that's really easy to at least start questioning a little bit, at least enough to not confidently, you know, belt it out like this. And I just so assuredly say like, yeah, they, it's their fault. They don't want to know. So they were willing to listen to the spirit this much to get this close, but then they, then they got their, their hearts all hardened, just all of them, you know, as, as someone said in the chat, there was like 70 million uh, Baptists compared to, you know, the claimed 16 million Mormons. So that many people all just harden their hearts. It's just, just, I guess, juvenile. I don't know. And and before Bednar reads the answer, I, Bill Real wants to just say, think about the FLDS church and other breakoffs of Mormonism when I read his answer. Bednar says, no, it's not the same method. These other religions and churches don't use the same method. Their pastors and leaders don't ask them to pray to know for themselves. If anything, they ask them not to pray and just listen to them. Uh, well, yes, that's a good point, and true for various religions. But I guess I am talking about what the method, when the method really is the same. I mean, some churches do ask their members to pray and get their own confirmation. Or like in our church, we have many followers of Denver Snuffer, whom I assume you know. Okay, so the, oh, do, you yeah. know, do you know Denver Snuffer, Elder Bednar? Do I know? Oh, yes, he said with a smile. <laughs> I, I go on. <clears throat> well, here are many otherwise good and faithful members who use the identical method of praying and fasting to know if what Denver teaches is true. And many of them receive strong spiritual confirmations that it is. These are people who have been given the gift of the Holy Ghost and to know the fruits of the Spirit and are using the same method that we do, or that, that we do, but yet are wrong, right? Yes. Or another example, uh, not my mission president, but one later on, would fly to would fly the sister missionaries around. I'm I'm sure you know the story. Oh. Wait, what? Um, it's at the top now. Okay, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Sorry. Ha ha. Understandably awkward, maybe embarrassed laugh while shaking his head affirmatively. By the way, this is Philander Smart the third. Yeah. This is Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. So so I said that like I'm sure you know the story. And he he, you know, looked up at me. He's you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I continue. I said, uh, well, essentially, uh, he would teach them the doctrine of plural marriage and tell them that he has this authority and he has been to the temple or whatever and received revelation that this sister should be his secret plural wife. He told them to pray about it 
and receive confirmation for themselves. And many sisters did and received that confirmation. <laughs> I mean, here are these sisters who are, I'm, I'm looking them in the eye at this point. It's so funny. I say, here are these sisters who are theoretically every day preaching the gospel with the spirit of testifying of Jesus, the Book of Mormon, etc., And then feel the same spirit tell them that yes, they should be a secret plural wife. It wasn't until a stake a sister calls her state president, I think it was her dad, to ask him about this. I mean, she broke the mission rules, but luckily she did. And of course, that put a stop to it. But the fact is, she and others did, did use the exact same method that we use, the same method they were asking their investigators to use to know if the church is true. So if the methods are indistinguishable from each other, then how can we be so certain in our beliefs? Joseph Smith said that nothing is... Gr- uh- is a greater injury to the children of men than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the spirit of God. He didn't say an evil spirit. He said a false spirit. So we really need to have the spirit of discernment. Yes, that's that's a really good quote. I guess... You went one page too far. Did I go too far? Okay, sorry. Let's see. There we go. Yes, that's a really good quote. I I guess the question then follows, how do we know that we discern correctly? I mean, these sister missionaries and others got it wrong by using the same method we do. Well, first off, they were wrong. They were deceived. Maybe an evil spirit or a false spirit or people's own impressions, thoughts, and feelings they mistook for the spirit. Either way, they were deceived. Right. I mean, we can say that because we know we have the truth. But still, if their method of determining that their beliefs are true are the same as ours, and they are just as certain as we are, then how do we really know that we are the only ones with the truth? How can you know that, that, how can you know that when your spiritual experiences, and I'll say this to him, I said that when your spiritual experiences are no different from what numerous other people have claimed? Well, we are not the only ones with the truth. Other people, religions, and groups also have truth, but we have the authority and the keys. That is the difference. Right, but but still, we hold on to our beliefs because of the fruits of the Spirit or the burning of the bosom that we get by employing the same method that other people have who are who we say are deceived. So just because we, like them, are certain about something, how, how do we know that our beliefs are actually accurate? Can you uh, get rid of that comment, Maven, so I can read it? But I did scroll up, so you're back at the top. Uh, uh, Oops, what happened there? Yeah, very tough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we have the authority. authority. Yeah. We have about two minutes left, so let's finish up this conversation. (laughs) Hey, can I stop right here? Because I wanted, because when I was talking with Tyler about this, as I was reading this uh, the first time, uh, first off, I was impressed that, uh, Elder Bednar did give him as much time as he did. And I think that we do need to say that, that that's really kind of remarkable. On the other hand, I said to Tyler, I said, well, of course you're in the LAX airport in the Delta club lounge and he's waiting for a flight and he's going to have to be leaving in two minutes for his flight. And then Tyler said, he didn't have to leave for his flight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we still had, we still had time to get ready to board. You know, we probably had at that time, probably 20 to 30 minutes or so. And so that's understandable, but but you can also tell from the flow of the conversation, you know, he wasn't liking where this was going, and and so I I, I wish I could have asked him more about this because that really is again 
a very big point, which maybe we can talk about more, just this, this idea of, tr you know, differentiating between the fillings of your own or a false spirit, as he says, or that of the Holy Ghost, right? And apparently um, he doesn't have an answer for that either. No, there is no answer for it. And what you're doing is you keep pounding him over the head with it. Yeah, he has some circular reasonings. Yeah, he can't get out of it. And, fi and finally, he gets backed up against the wall, and he goes where everybody goes when they get backed up against the wall, which is the truth claim, we have the authority. And that well, we're makes busy it... and we have to leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah I got to get out of here. We got to wrap this thing up. <laughs> so there's a little more, right? Yeah, we just yeah we just talk about BYU and a brief thing on the on the word of wisdom. Um, we could we could finish it and then maybe we could talk about the spiritual epistemology a little bit more. Sure. Um, okay, so I said, oh sure, uh, we need to get ready to board soon. It was certainly a pleasure to meet meet you and talk with you. I appreciate our conversation. You're welcome. It was nice to visit with you. Also, tell me again where you are from and where did you go to school? And what's the name of your state president? <laughs> Well, I went to BYU-Idaho for my undergrad. And, and and how do you like BYU-Idaho? Well, honestly, for me, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. There was a great spirit there. I liked my professors. Granted, I, I married early on and even served in the bishopric. And so it may have been more enjoyable for me than single people who are in their 20s and still must follow the many rules. Haha, yes. Well, it was very nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise. Where are you coming back from, by the way? From Korea and Japan, we had some meetings over there with the saints. Oh, that's great. Yeah, very long flight. I had been to those countries in China a number of times for my work. So, so I have to say, with the Asian culture who really likes their tea, I mean, I can't tell you how often I have broken the word of wisdom, either knowingly with tea because there was literally all I had access to and I needed something to wash the food down. He's not as smiling as, you know, <laughs> um, so I said, so of course, I, I'm not going to ask you to prophesy or see into the future or anything. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not like you're a prophet or a seer or anything. <laughs> um, or anything. But, but given that these Asian countries drink a lot of tea and with all the scientific data showing the benefits of tea, I mean, compared to, say, Monster or other energy drinks, can you foresee that we will ever update the Word of Wisdom to allow room for things like tea? Haha, ha. well, I normally don't like to give my opinion on things like this, but when it comes to the health code of, code of the Word of Wisdom, I don't know and can't really give you my opinion on it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yes, makes sense. Thanks again for the visit. Have a nice flight. You too. Let's go, Susan. <laughs> so that's the end of the, the uh, transcript of the conversation that you had with Elder Bednar at the LAX airport and the Delta Sky Club room back on September 18th of 2022. Yep. And then, and then that's the, and I, and again, we talked about this in the first episode, but after I said that, I then, as I was turning to leave, there was his wife, Susan. And, and then I, I, you know, I shook her hand and I said, well, it was nice meeting you also, even though she wasn't part of any of the conversation. Um, uh, but again, we talked about that. I, I wish I could have seen her, seen her reactions, get her thoughts or something on this as well. Yeah. Can I give you a couple of comments that I had about this part of the epistemology? Yeah, please. Yeah. This whole attempt to differentiate between the spirit of Christ or the light of Christ, I should say, and the Holy Ghost. 
This is one of the soft points in Mormon theology. We make a big deal of distinguishing the light of Christ from the Holy Ghost, but then we tend to end up defining them in much the same way. We really try to use different language to describe them both, but it ends up being pretty much the same when you get right down to it, kind of like marriages versus ceilings. It's also interesting to me that Moroni's promise to the non-member does not say the truth of all things will be revealed to you by the power of the light of Christ. It says by the Holy Ghost. So apparently there is at least one doctrinal exception to a person receiving revelation from the Holy Ghost prior to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it gets worse from there, by the way. Um, I know that you're familiar with this, and actually you know the citation to this in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 37. I had okay. thought it was 36, but you were correct. It was 37 when we talked on the phone. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And that's one of these strange things that exists in the Mormon scriptures, actually in the Articles and Covenants of the Church, section 20, a very important section. And yet we've got something in there about uh, the qualifications for baptism, which is very different from what we believe today. And that is where it says, and again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. Now, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism into his church. So here in section 20, verse 37, it says a person has to have been cleansed of their sins by the Holy Ghost before they're baptized. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there's actually several. Uh, actually, I was going to look at the Joe Smith history, too, where it talks about um, their baptism. And it makes a similar statement about being cleansed, um, you know, the Holy Ghost coming, again, in this case, before they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, it is very interesting that they make this. But I think it's primarily Elder Bednar who's making this type of distinction between the light of Christ and and um, the Holy Ghost. Although I think he probably got a lot of that from Elder McConkie. Oh, I'm sure. Um and he gets into it a little bit more. And by into it, I mean sort of stuck in it. It's like quicksand for him because you're talking about the Baptists, right? And they have the light of Christ, so they become Baptists. And if they continue to follow the light of Christ, then they'll become Mormons, right? That's what the light of Christ does. But then he says that they have to have discernment. You remember that part, yep. Tyler? Yep. yep, they have to be able to discern. Well, and my question is, isn't the isn't discernment a gift of the spirit that is supposed to wait until we have been baptized into the LDS church and given the gift of the Holy Ghost? So why does he expect Baptists to have a gift of the Holy Ghost, i.e. discernment before they're Mormons and while they're still Baptists? It seems that Elder Bednar is at one and the same time insisting that non-members do not have the Holy Ghost while saying they have to exercise a gift of the Holy Ghost, or what we also call the gift of the Spirit, in order to know whether the inspiration they're receiving is from God. This is one of the reasons I call this a soft spot in Mormon theology, because it really, really doesn't make a lot of sense. And the attempt that uh, Mormon leaders and writers have made 
to differentiate between the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost end up leading to all kinds of confusing and contradictory positions. And, and you guys all grasp that, yeah, in our heads as believing Mormons, we have this um, difference, like here's the light of Christ and here's the Holy Ghost and the light of Christ is lesser and the Holy Ghost is more. But every one of us as Mormons, when we really had to explain it to somebody, we couldn't. There's no difference. Like, um, as you're pointing out, people coming into the church are having marvelous experiences entering the church where they know the truth of it, supposedly, right? And then there are people like me who get excommunicated, and I don't feel any different. I'm, I'm still having the same kinds of experiences that I had inside. They're just not about Mormonism anymore. And so when the rubber meets the road, there isn't any difference between the two, no matter how many times we theologically try to explain that one is greater than the other. Yeah. And I think, too, I it's when this kind of a thing happens, when we're faced with somebody that is obviously outside of this or, you know, that we feel is sincere and has some amount of light, but it is yet still somehow not a member of our faith, um, or especially when they deconvert. I knew somebody in school who... I mean, we like to think that if you've gone to the temple or if you've served a mission, if you've done these things that the church says, that that makes it, you know, less likely for that to happen to you. But I just remember a classmate of mine whose brother had served a mission, but ended up converting to Islam. And so uh, when we asked her, just you know, what her thoughts were on that, I remember her just kind of shrugging her shoulders and just saying, it's just something like I love my brother and I you know, obviously when it's your own family and your own friends, you know that they're not just just deliberately choosing to not follow a certain path. You know what I mean? So she's like, I just really hope that God will work it out in the end. And that's all she had. And that's all anyone has. You know, this this difference is really only to give an answer to us. It doesn't actually explain anything uh, we see out in the real world. Right. And by the way, in case there's anybody out there who is not really sure about what you were talking about, Tyler, regarding a past mission president of yours who went to the Puerto Rico mission. And we're talking about Philander Smart, who was out there with his private airplane flying around from place to place since he was a pilot. And by place to place, I mean island to island, strategically putting the sister missionaries out in these far-flung islands where they are remote and kind of inaccessible to other people. And then flying out to meet them, taking them on plane rides, gifts, and telling them, that the Spirit of God has told him that this sister missionary is supposed to be one of his plural wives. And he was doing that with several plural uh, plural wives, plural missionaries, um, several sister missionaries. And he was getting success. It wasn't like they were all saying, let me pray about this. No, I know that by the Holy Ghost that you're telling me is wrong. No, several of them went along with it. And then one of the sisters called state president back home and said, I don't think this is right. And then we got up to Salt Lake and then they landed with all four feet in Puerto Rico with church leaders. And I believe with Sherry do. And they put the kibosh on this entire story to such an extent that nobody knew about it outside of it until about 10 years later, when finally someone leaked it to Peggy Fletcher stack and it showed up in the tribune. And I think, did you guys cover it in a Mormonism live episode? We can mm -hmm. put that yes, in the show early as well. On. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's also interesting that this whole thing about this epistemology and this very soft spot in Mormon theology um, showed up in general conference. Yes. Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Specifically, Elder Dale Renlund's 
talk in general conference. And he said a number of things that were quite similar to what Elder Bednar told you. And they also similarly revealed the weakness in the theology because this was a cluster of a talk that Elder Renlund gave. And he ends up trying to clear things up and only leaves the waters more muddied than they were at the beginning. And we've got three clips from that address from General Conference. So he can play the first one and then we'll have Tyler comment on this and why it is that Tyler thought this was very, very interesting. Okay, I do believe this is the first one. A second element of the framework is that we receive personal revelation only within our purview and not within the prerogative of others. In other words, we take off and land in our appointed runway. The importance of well-defined runways was learned early in the history of the Restoration. Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon, claimed to be receiving revelations for the entire church. Several members were deceived and wrongly influenced. In response, the Lord revealed that no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church excepting my servant Joseph Smith until I shall appoint another in his stead. Doctrine, commandments, and revelations for the church are the prerogative of the living prophet who receives them from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the prophet's runway. Yeah, Tyler, what was it that you wanted to draw out of this particular video clip? Well, I, you know, I was, I, I just, just kind of came to me, but I was thinking this problem with this epistemology on the, on the spiritual level really has its roots from, from everywhere, back in the days of Joseph Smith, including. And this example that he gave is from Section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So, of course, the story is that a higher page he um, was using a, 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 you know, this black stone that he found, right? Um, they called the peep stone. Um, right. Hiram, Hiram Page has a peep stone. Joseph Smith's rock is a seer stone. That's the difference. It's <laughs> like ceilings and marriages, baby. <laughs> it, 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 All semantics. But, but, but here it says, this is right from the header, right? You can read, read this, section 28. It says uh, that Hiram Page, a member of the church, well, he's not just a member of the church, right? I mean, he, he was a, a, a one of the witnesses, one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon, right? And Oliver Cowdery's brother-in-law as well, right? Uh, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they're, think they're so. all connected, which is another interesting thing, right? Kind of like church leaders today. <laughs> he had a certain stone and professed to be receiving revelations by its aid converting um, concerning the building of Zion. It says several members had been deceived by these claims and even Oliver Cowdery was wrongly influenced thereby. So again, if anybody is going to be able to differentiate between the, the true Holy Ghost and this, this false spirit, it should be someone like Hiram Page and Oliver Cowdery. I mean, when you read the witnesses, the, the, the witness account of the Book of Mormon, it's a very powerful experience that they talk about how God manifested, you know, an angel came and it was a spirit of God. It, it, everything is laid out. And so if anything, these people should be very, very good at recognizing the difference between the Holy Ghost and not the Holy Ghost. And apparently they couldn't do it. And so Joseph Smith um, 
apparently gets a revelation. And this is going to help explain how how is it that you can discern between the Holy Ghost and the false spirit. And the revelation basically just says, Joseph Smith is the only person who can speak in my name. He's the only person who 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 can give revelations for the church. And and so that's how it was solved back then is just, well, Joseph Smith is the only one who, who can do it. And that's how it's being solved today. And it just reminded me, I guess Doctrine and Covenant section 50. Um, that, that's, that is, you know, if ye have um, not the spirit, ye shall not teach, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, I think the first, um, a- anyway, and then, the, but, but the teacher and the learner should be edified for each other, by, by each other. This, this whole section, that's known as words of wisdom. And that section came out again for the same problem because members of the church were having difficulty discerning between the true Holy Ghost and their own spirits or that an evil spirit. And, and so it seems like from the very beginning of the, of, of the days of the church, this has always been a problem. And yet, you know, these, again, are top leaders of the church, and they have not been able to differentiate or been able to distinguish between the feelings of the Holy Ghost and that of their own. Yeah, this whole personal revelation thing <clears throat> is very dangerous to the church. And yet they have to continue to act as if members have the right to receive personal revelation. So the way they usually do that is by saying, your revelation has to agree with what we say. And any revelation you receive, well, you can receive that maybe on who to get married or your career, if you're a man, or where you want to live. But that's it. I like, Everything I else like your is comments us. on that, RFM. What? There's I, a comment about that? Well, yeah, sorry to cut in. So this is also something you mentioned in your episode of your conference overview. And I appreciate that you brought up the fact that um, for women where missions are still optional technically and careers are not really our thing, um, at at the very least, it is a a small blessing that for the most part, uh, we get to choose who to marry, although the timing on that is still kind of pushed out. But anyway, I I thought that was a good line from you on that one. Thank you. Is it? It's it's almost a variation of a no true Scotsman fallacy, and the logic is extremely circular. Yeah, that's right. A like point. the idea that like I'm the guy who speaks for God, and anyone else who claims doesn't, and then any kind of logical question that walks me into a corner where oh, like yeah, that is the same method, I end up going yeah, it is, but I'm I the one who speaks heard. for God, and you don't. Right. That's where you get into the dogmatism. Yeah. It goes back to, I have the authority. That's what Elabednar said. That's what Joseph Smith is saying here. And that's what Elder Renlund is saying, right? And and it's interesting, maybe in that point that I guess RFM, you know, want to give you credit um, for uh, bringing the, the, the idea that even with marriage, you don't necessarily have that option, right, of who you're going to marry. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I thought I was choosing to go to BYU-Idaho, but actually I didn't. In fact, that's the only school that I applied to. I could apply to a lot of the schools, but I wanted to go to the Lord's school, the discipleship, to become a true disciple. It's the only school I applied to, even though I, I could have and wanted to go to maybe other schools. Um, even my career choice, I, you know, anyway, I'm just saying there's a, there's a lot of things from, 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 from marriage to school to the career. Uh, I, things could have been a lot different, um, but I there wasn't a choice in that. So that's also kind of interesting. Yeah, and Tyler, you don't have to worry about giving me attribution for that idea because I stole it from John O. Reed anyway. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I know, I know, women that um, 
also didn't choose, or I guess, I don't know, maybe the way to say it is that, that you have had men in their lives also kind of pull a Joseph Smith and say that they've felt the spirit or that they've felt that they've received revelation of that a woman is supposed to be uh, his or her husband. And I've had that tried on me, but um, I was the wrong person to try that on, even as a full believer, um, because that's the kind of revelation I want to get for myself. Um, and so I was fine leaving somebody hanging um, with their own revelation. But um, unfortunately, when you're taught so much to listen to your priesthood leadership, it is still rather easy for, especially return missionaries. They know the talk. They can use the spirit voice when they want to. You know, they, they've got all the, the tricks, the salesman tricks up their sleeve. And so it can be easier, um, especially younger women, girls, 18, 19, right out of high school. It's easy to manipulate them into believing you uh, when you tell them that you are meant to be their wife. And, and even I mean, there's even general authorities and one we might go over um, in the future um, who's uh, who had to propose multiple times to convince this young lady to marry him. And it's just it's just kind of icky. It's icky. So even not all women, even in the church, even in the modern day, are really choosing their spouses either. So I just want to put that out. Good point. By the way, let me show my age by giving you a joke from the 70s. Uh, what was the definition of return missionary back then? I remember it was an octopus with a testimony. Oh, nobody else has heard that. I, is okay. it because they're handsy? Is that am I going a different place than like I think I've heard it? Yeah, don't make me explain the joke, please. <laughs> yes, it's because they're handsy. Yeah, eight, eight arms. Yep, but they got a testimony. Wow, I'm striking out tonight. I hope I'm doing better in the no, live chat. That's all I can say. Well, I think it's just one of those things where, I mean, sometimes the things we're joking about are, you know, I guess they're just sad things when you think about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, they've got the badge, you know, that that RM, and that's what women are told to look for, not not someone who actually, actually respects them. But if they're an RM, then that's just a given. So there you go. I know, and the funny thing is that any guy missionary who was an elder on a mission and has been there for two years and seen all the different types of missionaries there are on a mission, immediately realizes that being an RM means zero. And that's why I was actually excited when the age range, like when they dropped it for, I mean, they did it for the guys, but also for women to go at 19, because I knew a lot more would go. And I feel like just having that experience yourself is enough to kind of help you get past that idea and right. so that was something that did always kind of bother me about the larger age range difference before because i did feel like it was just a little too easy to manipulate young girls young women yeah so sister missionaries get out there and they can see how the sausage is made those deceptive spirits are really good at influencing people aren't they it's, right it's to and the they're point so where hard to yeah. tell it it's to the point where in Mormonism, there's this idea that the Holy Ghost can keep you on the straight and narrow, but the brethren are so afraid of deceptive spirits and false spirits and bad people and people who present themselves as having the truth who don't, so worried that that somebody's going to listen to Radio Free Mormon or Mormon Discussion or uh, Mormonism Live, and, and they're going to be taken off the path. Where's the Holy Ghost at? Like, why isn't it effective enough? Why, why can't we just rely on it? If good members want to keep uh, the commandments and want to uh, be obedient in the gospel, then the Holy Ghost should be sufficient. 
And if it's not, maybe it's just not real. You, you know, Bill, I, I, that's exactly my thought also is it's almost like when you look at um, other religious organizations like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, um, again, most of maybe a objective, reasonable people would look at that organization and they would say, wow, there's, there's some really har- you know, harsh things that are going on. Yet when we look at the n- numbers of membership that they have, right? I mean, it's, it, you could estimate up to 20 million people, depending on how you're going to count the numbers. Um, it, it's larger than our church. And so, so it kind of puts where it's like, why is it that either man or Satan is more effective at obtaining and retaining converts than God's one and only true church? If the Holy Ghost could really be used to, dif- to differentiate uh, and we could differentiate and help us get to the church, to get to the truth, then I absolutely feel like we would be able to because there are people like in Scientology, Jehovah's Witness, all these religions who they literally have no problem uh, covenanting for the next billion years or their entire life if necessary or everything to do. Whichever comes first. <laughs> exactly. But, 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 they, but they literally are, they, these are some of the best people that you can find and they just want to do what God wants them to. And so I, I have a really hard time when someone wants to say, well, they're just they're just deceived and, and they don't really they have this choice where they they don't really want to come to the truth or something. And that's that's very hurtful, I think, because this is the kind of person that that is so dedicated and just and so loyal to what God wants that if if that Holy Ghost could actually speak to their heart, they would they would change and do what God wants. But apparently the Holy Ghost doesn't have the power to do that either outside of the church or inside of the church. Yeah. Yeah. RFM's message and uh, my message and Denver Snuffer's message and John DeLynn's message and Lindsay Hanson Park's message seems to have, when you get the chance to sit down with somebody and really present the history accurately, those deceptive spirits seem to do a better job of persuading people. Are we ready for the second clip from Elder Renland? Everybody? I've got it ready. Thanks. Years ago, I received a phone call from an individual who'd been arrested for trespassing. He told me it had been revealed to him that additional scripture was buried under the ground floor of a building he tried to enter. He claimed that once he obtained the additional scripture, he knew he'd received the gift of translation bring forth new scripture, and shape the doctrine and direction of the Church. I told him that he was mistaken, and he implored me to pray about it. I told him I wouldn't. He became verbally abusive and ended the phone call. I didn't need to pray about this request for one simple but profound reason. Only the prophet receives revelation for the Church. It would be contrary to the economy of God for others to receive such revelation which belongs on the prophet's runway. Was I the only one getting kind of uncomfortable as he's describing this gentleman that he says he got a phone call from? Because it sure sounds a lot like Joseph Smith to me. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting because I, I thought 
anyway, yeah, I thought I thought kind of the same thing where he's that is what Joe Smith was was uh, attempting to do. But we could argue, well, the the church wasn't there yet, right? Joe Smith was called to do that. There was no other prophet for Joe Smith to do. Um, but but anyway, I, yes, I, I made the same connection, and in fact, um, it it kind of reminded me of. Even later on uh, in Doctrine and Covenants section 111, right, where Joseph Smith is basically deceived into believing that there's treasure buried under the this, this cellular, cellular house or, or in, under the cellar in this house in, uh, in Salem. Yeah, in Salem, Massachusetts, right? And, and I mean, you know, we, we can say, well, God didn't tell him to go there. God uh, wasn't direct command to go there. I mean, it, it, you know, there's there's some apologetic response out there that aren't the best but but even with that i mean joseph smith had the feeling that it was there and he went into the house and tried to get those try to get the plates or try to get that this this the, the treasure and you know he was not successful so i thought that's anyway kind of interesting yeah lesser minds might call that trespassing and theft it, every prophet has to have his first experience where god tells him something and what Elder Runlin's saying is the moment you have your first experience, other than the guys we know have had their first experience, everyone else who's had their first experience, they're the wrong source. That's they, they can't be a prophet, but every prophet has to have his first experience. Like It's not fair to say that uh, prior to being a leader in a church for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that you have no ability to be a prophet because... Joseph Smith wasn't a leader in the LDS church when God called him to be a prophet. Like it's, it's also circular reasoning. It, every prophet has to have their first experience and Elder Runland's dismissing the first experience out of hand. Well, it's, like it's also interesting. David, I don't know if you have, I, I had mentioned on the, on the talk that he gives a reference, uh, reference 28. Did, do you have that by chance? I do not have that. Okay, but, but it doesn't matter. But if you look at the talk online and go to reference 28, it says basically that uh, fortunately arrangements were made um, so, so that this man could receive the help and treatment that he really needed. In other words, Renlin called the cops. Uh, or, well, well I, I don't know if he called the cops, but it sounds to me like maybe this man was having some schizophrenic episode, maybe he had a mental illness of some sort, and he needed to get mental tre treatment. And again, that's interesting that Elder Renlin then is essentially saying that mental illnesses also cannot be in, distinguished from the Holy Ghost. And is this also implying that maybe Joseph Smith also had a mental illness? Like, what's the difference here, right? And and I and and the way that it, it comes across is like it's almost like a laughing point. Let I me mean, read the note. It says, you know, for the treatment he really needed, you know, because if somebody were to tell me, hey, my neighbor uh, thinks there's buried, uh, um, there, there's buried you know, records or scripture underneath this house, right? We would think that that's crazy. And it's like a laugh line, right? That, that he's doing that. But that is exactly what Joseph Smith did. And, and I just, I feel like there's some sort of compartmentalization and disingenuous to be kind of uh, laughing at the misfortune of somebody who might have a mental illness. Yeah. And, and we yet extolling Joseph Smith as, as, you know, he was perfect just doing what God wanted him to do. And yet, now again, he, he's illustrating that the, you cannot differentiate between the Holy Ghost and your own personal feelings, a false spirit, or 
or a mental illness even. And that's that's kind of sad. Was yeah, Nephi, maybe, I'm sorry. Yeah. Was Nephi, yeah, was Nephi called to be a leader in the church or was Nephi called to be a prophet prior to being told to cut off Laban's head? That was like, a comment Nephi's earlier. Nephi's still alive, right? Like the, the, right. Yeah, so it, again, the logic is just really bad. <laughs> and yeah. ask about that before you did it. Um, but I did want to say, I think um, the implication of something, um, you know, of a mental illness, even if, even though he treats it in that way that like he got help that he needed and the church is trying to be a bit more positive about that. Um, I think ultimately we know it's still viewed as a really negative thing, a negative thing to have if it's believed that you have it. Um, whereas kind of your normal run of the mill depression and anxiety, especially in women, that's not really real. You just need to pray harder, you know. Um, when they're not dismissing it outright, it is seen as a negative. So I, I feel like it was definitely a signal, you know, this guy's crazy, obviously, you know, and I, so I think ultimately it was hurtful and, and ableist in the way that this was included in the story, regardless of that kind of note. And I think it's a really common tactic to, um, I guess, ad hominem someone is to call that into question. And I don't know if it, I, I do feel like it does happen a lot with women. I don't know if it's maybe more than average, but to be called hysterical um, or I, there's a, like there was a kerfuffle, I guess, on my Facebook page um, with somebody that ended up calling me like a, an abusive narcissist. It was saying like I had to, I needed to see a therapist, especially one that um, uh, specializes in cluster B, like or, or I think personality disorder, cluster B types or whatever it is, um, which is that the really, um, um, you know, awful ones. And it was really funny because the thing that prompted that was so minor. It was so minor, but to go that extreme, it, you know, I, it didn't bother me at all, but like, it's just, it, it just was interesting to me that this is the best way when this guy was upset to try to come after me, um, was to go for mental illness and, and tell me, and even he tried to sound sincere and he's like, I really mean this. I think you really need help. I think you need therapy. Um, and you need someone that can deal with cluster B type personality disorders. So yeah. <laughs> It's always it's always a bad thing to signal mental illness, um, I think, in the church. Oh, yeah. And what I would respond in situations like this is uh, it doesn't make any difference if I have a mental illness. It doesn't change the history of the church. Right. Right. So that's I'm kind of proud of my mental illnesses. Yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking the same. I was like, if I do have like a cluster B, if I'm a narcissist, I feel like those kinds of people, you know, who they hurt the most is those closest to them. So by staying single and, and not having children, I think I'm the most benevolent narcissist I know by not um, inflicting that on to anyone in my like immediate sphere. So um, anyway, uh, and like you said, RFM, it doesn't change what this person did wrong. So regardless, you know, anyway, yeah. yeah. Are we ready for the third? Oh, I'm sorry, Maven. Did you have something else? Nope, I was just going to bring up the third clip. So, okay, yeah. great. And once told me about his struggles to stabilize his family's financial situation. He had the idea to embezzle funds as a solution, prayed about it, and felt he had received affirmative revelation to do so. I knew he had been deceived because he sought revelation contrary to a prophet, contrary to a commandment of God. The prophet Joseph Smith warned, nothing is a greater injury to the children of men 
than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the Spirit of God. Now that's interesting because that sounded kind of familiar, that quote from Joseph Smith. What do you think about that, Tyler? Yeah, I, I, uh, I thought that was interesting as well. I mean, this is, this is not a, I wouldn't say it's, it's an obscure quote, you know, it's not like, you know, something that's, you know, in, in some letter that was written by some prophet or something, but it's in, found in teaching the prophet Joseph Smith, but, but we don't, we don't, we're not even allowed to use that book in teaching uh, Sunday school anymore. I mean, that's, that's not even approved manually. You know, you have to, you have to stick with just what's on there. And it's not a quote that is found, you know, in, in, you know, the normal gospel doctrine manuals or in the you know, CES, you know, church institute, seminary institute manuals and things. And so I do think it's interesting that Elder Bednar, two weeks before, right, he quoted that exact same quote. And, and so to me, it indicates that perhaps this is a discussion that is being had, that's an ambient, in the ambience, for example, um, that maybe had communication, maybe Elder Bednar simply read uh, his talk, I, I don't know. Um, at the very least, it, maybe it serves as an indicator that, yes, this conversation with Elder Bednar really happened. Um, just that this, this, you know, is probably not just mere coincidence that Elder Bednar said that exact same quote um, that Elder Renlund shared. Yeah, and Maven had a really interesting cross-reference on that with something that Joseph Smith said in relation to failing to get the copyright on the Book of Mormon in Canada. Do you remember that, Maven? Um, I mean, I, I remember it like, generally, but I think he said that it, it was a false spirit that had told him that. Yeah, he, he said. Go ahead. Tyler? Oh, well, I just I just know that story, but. Yeah, he but said the, some, some revelations yeah. are of God, some are of men, and some are of the devil. With the implication that obviously, since it failed as, as of the time he's saying it, this was I, not from God. Right. And he couldn't tell on the front end. Right. Only after hmm. it failed hmm. could he tell. And we don't hear that one. I mean, as little as we hear that first quote from Joseph Smith, that second quote from Joseph Smith, that's pretty much uh, never in church correlated materials. By the way, I did some research on this particular quote, Tyler. Because I know that there's this wonderful website, which I want to let people know about. I've, I've done it before. It's called uh, the LDS General Conference Corpus. It has all the general conference talks and it's searchable. And this goes back to uh, all the way back to the beginning. It doesn't stop in 1971, like on the church webpage. And it turns out that this quote is kind of rare. It's only been used five times in general conference, according to my search five times prior to Elder Renlund using it this past conference in 2022. And the most recent time it was used was in 1994. So I think that's 28 years ago. That was Boyd K. Packer. Before that was 1960. So 34 years before that, Marion G. Romney, 59, Delbert Stapley, 56, Marion G. Romney again. He really liked that quote. And then for the first time it was used, you have to go back to 1864, and that's George A. Smith. So the, the research I did does tend to indicate or corroborate my own feelings that this is a quote that I don't hear very much in general conference. In fact, it is not heard very much in general conference. You really only want to pull this out in very specific circumstances, which is when other people are saying that they're receiving revelation that you don't like. You definitely don't want this in the normal 
talks about revelation, about getting answers from the Holy Ghost, you don't want this one to continually be thrown in there as often as that lesson, um, you know, is repeated over and over that we get in Sunday school. So, well, yes. well, the irony, yeah. the irony of this entire thing, though, is how do you disagree with that quote? I mean, if Joseph Smith is a prophet, it's right there, right? That quote is exactly right, that there's nothing more injurious to, to man than for them to believe they are under the spirit of God when really they're under the spirit of a false spirit. That's what we're talking about, Elder Renland. That's what we're talking and that, about. And this that entire thing is that you, you that that this spirit apparently can make really good people do really horrific things and that we can't differentiate between what's true and what's not true. You know, and and I think it's critical that we understand that I wish the brethren could answer this question. That it's like the magnitude that you feel the spirit, um, you know, does not indicate its accuracy, right? Certainty, and I said this out of the bed now, I said certainty is a feeling, right? It, it's simply a feeling, and, and the feeling of certainty does not indicate whether or not something is accurate. And it is interesting, when, when you look at the, the strongest, most bold statements that have been made by um, apostles, by prophets, by the first presidency, uh, save the claim that you know Jesus is the Christ, but everything else, such as the doctrine of Adam is the father of our spirits. This was taught, you know, in the temple, um, the lecture at the veil, for example. Brigham Young was very adamant that it, it, it'll be the peril of your salvation if you don't believe this doctrine. Bruce and McConkie, right, said the exact same thing with the exact same amount of eloquence and certainty that if you do believe this doctrine, you do so at the peril of your salvation. Right. You have the, the um, again, the, the teachings, the rhetoric about um, the, the people of color and their and, the, and how they're they're not being valued in the premortal life, for example. Um, again, that turned out to be wrong. You have many of Joseph Fielding Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith on the age of the earth. Um, you know, those ended up being wrong. And we can just go down the list. And, and there's almost like if we could put a graph, so a mathematical graph on this, right? And on the, the y-axis and the x-axis, right? You'd, you'd almost see an, an inverse linear relationship between the magnitude that the prophets feel certain about something and the accuracy that it is. And the more just, I mean, look at, look at President Nelson just recently, you know, with the 2015 exclusion policy. Again, a bold statement. This is not just our policy or an idea. This is revelation from God. And that was, that's one of the few things, you know, that was said, this revelation. When they, when they made other changes, like, you know, two-hour church, for example, that wasn't a big deal. Like, this is revelation from God, right? It was a big, but, but the magnitude of their statement of certainty, this is revelation with a 2015 policy, again, fits on this graph perfectly in this inverse linear relationship that it ends up being inaccurate. So if anything, there's how you can tell statistical probability by how deeply uh, certain they are about something. And you're most likely going to find that it's probably not accurate. Yeah, I know that Carrie Schertz has been very eloquent and forceful in talking about the Lafferty brothers and the murder that they committed, double murder, that they committed because they believed quite certainly, obviously, that God had commanded them to do it that this was received by, or at least one of them and the other believed, but whatever, there's revelation to kill. They believed it. They were certain of it. They did it. 
And the reason I give this to Kerry Schertz is because he was very forceful about this, that this one incident alone blasts away the entire epistemological framework of Mormonism. How is it that you can say that you know something is true by the Holy Ghost, while at the same time recognizing the historical fact that the Lafferty's killed innocent people and an innocent baby because they believed that they had received revelation from God through the Holy Ghost. And, and let's not forget that, that he also used the story of Nephi, the exact story that Elder Renlund shares, where That's he right. says, I was like Nephi, not knowing beforehand whether I should go. And I got there. And Elder Renlund, and I, I don't know if we have the clip, but, but in that thing, he says, let's look about Nephi, right? He didn't want to kill Laban. And so therefore, it's going to make it okay, right? Well, right. this guy Lafferty, he didn't want to kill. He says that, right? He didn't want to kill them, but it's a commandment from God. Right. And yeah. Renlund also says that Nephi knew with certainty that this is true. Mm -hmm. So did the guy. So did this guy. And so do so do, so do all these people. They know with certainty the guy that embezzled the funds. He knew with certainty. Other Renlund didn't start out by saying. He wasn't so sure he was kind of on the edge, but, you know, because he had just a little inkling, he decided to go do it. No, he also was certain that it was OK to do. Right. And, and then and then the third thing he says, well, Nephi wasn't doing this for his own benefit, which I guess kind of boggles the mind. I mean, I mean, he killed Laban so he could go take the place for his own benefit and that of his children and future prosperity. I don't, I don't know what more benefit you could possibly ask for than getting something that means a lot to you for yourself and for your entire family. But be that as it, way, as it may, I can understand people saying, trying to justify it by saying, well, you know, it wasn't just for him. It was more altruistic. It was going to benefit a lot of people. But again, that's the exact same thing as, as the Lafferty brothers, right? It, it wasn't just for them. It was, this is what God wanted. Need to, you know, they needed to do the work, right? So I feel like in every case, and every example that Elder Renlund gave, his circular reasoning only compounded and exacerbated the very issue he's trying to solve. Right. I will just yeah. note parenthetically that Nephi did steal Laban's sword as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just want to know, if, if you, you pointed to this, Tyler. If these 15 prophets, seers, and revelators going back to Joseph Smith aren't very effective... If we can point out that their accuracy at knowing things is actually not very good, and I think we actually could demonstrate that pretty easily. The things, as you pointed out, the things they're most certain of are the things that tend to get flip-flopped at some point, right? If, if we could show that those 15 men going back 200 years aren't any more accurate than randomly 15 old guys who have to be unified to make a decision— then why would we want to follow prophets, seers, and revelators? And, and I'll, I'll follow it up with this, which is if you were to sit down with an LDS-believing member and go, look, you value prophets, seers, and revelators, they go, oh, yeah, I do. Oh, yeah, I love them. And I go, okay, like, tell me what George Albert Smith did. Tell me what, uh, you know, Heber J. Grant did. Tell me what uh, Harold B. Lee did. And the, and the reality is most believing members go in their head and go, I don't know anything about those guys. Like, I, I don't know anything. Like, they're supposed to be like Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and I don't have two cents worth of information on what makes them special. And to the point where when you get the book of 
the lives of the presidents of the church. And it was a blue and red book. You probably have it on the shelf there behind you. I've got it somewhere back here. And you read each one of those guys. It, it tells you how, uh, what, which one was it? RFM that learned to throw a curveball and got his handwriting better. You know, like, Grant. we don't have anything. These guys, Ulysses there's, there's look, Heber J. Grant. He, there's nothing yeah. special That's about it. these people to the point where the stories we tell about our prophet seers and revelators is they improve their handwriting and learn to throw a freaking baseball. That's what we've got. They're not worth our time. It's why the, and the church acknowledges it. It's why living prophets trump dead prophets, because we can't hang on to anything those guys say. It gets flip-flopped. So for the believer, for the few believers who are watching the show, tell me why they're valuable when they're about as good as a broken clock that's right twice a day. You know, it, it's not that useful. Well, a broken I, calculator that's right sometimes isn't isn't worth using for mathematical equations. So, so I want to answer your question and and um, and give a rebuttal to my rebuttal, a sir rebuttal, I guess it is, right? Um, you know, because I, I went through the same thing. Okay, what what value then do these prophets give us if if they are wrong on every like, like I said on every falsifiable thing, scientifically, social issues, and you know, you think they'd be right on theology, but every level of theology have also changed. So then what value are they? And especially like, as you pointed out, when you look at the, their, their life and what do they do? Improve their handwriting. They could throw the baseball and things. And so I thought, well, when I read these books and these accounts of them, um, they're picking out the very best things of their lives. And I think I would say, okay, in this case, that's a good role model to follow. Um, there, there's a good things that he did, you know, trying to practice baseball. I was an avid baseball player and I remember hearing that story and I'm like, well, I'm going to do the exact same thing that he did. I had terrible handwriting. And so I decided to do the exact same thing and my handwriting didn't get better at all. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm just saying maybe there, there are some good things there. And then finally, the idea is that these men are supposed to point us towards Christ and not necessarily point us towards scientific accuracies. But then the issue becomes that's not what they claim, right? They, they claim to be able to speak for God and whatever they say as, as held as a, um, a, the, the 15, 14 fundamentals of the following the prophet, right? Um, you know, that, that they can speak on all these subjects. And yet we see time and time again that they can't. And in fact, uh, um, Bill, you, 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 had, you talked about how, you know, the probability, statistics probability of them getting something right. It's almost worse than that because when you psychological psychology research has basically shown that when people are on the top of the Dunning Kruger effect, right? When they when when they are um, the, the higher the confidence they have about something, then they're going to do more confirmation bias. They're going to not seek out outside opinions and outside help. And in fact, when you look at how the apostles are treated, everyone's just a yes man to them because everyone wants to go up to. Uh, and, and continue climbing the ladder. Nobody wants to give them pushback. And so you don't really have any of this, um, you know, it's worse than group think. And so you end up making policies and, and making claims that are potentially worse than if it was just random chance because of these psychological fallacies. They should rename the Dunning-Kruger effect, the Fielding-Smith-McConkie effect, because those two the church even acknowledges by the way it treats those two's teachings today, that those two, everything they taught has been discarded. Like those guys thought they knew everything and imposed that we read their books to know everything. 
And today it's all gone. It's all, it's all gone just into the wind. Yeah. I'm going to want to hopefully wind this down so we can take some callers. I do want to add though, that it's a little known historical fact that president Heber J Grant did play a season with the Yankees. Yeah. And, and with Paul H. Dunn? <laughs> I think they played together. Did they? Shortstop and second base, I'm sure. Yes. With I wanted Mario to, Mendoza. I just wanted to throw in a couple more comments here. And then there were a few questions that maybe we can get to while um, while we're waiting for callers to come in, if that's okay. Um, I'm just thinking uh, with Renlin and his, um, going back to his talk in conference, um, you know, where he said he didn't even have to pray about the ridiculous requests that he received. Um, and everybody kind of laughs at it because everyone knows it's ridiculous. I, I almost feel like in a different context, um, I mean, maybe even a, a meeting with the brethren, like a similar story could have been told basically about women of the church uh, wanting to know about Heavenly Mother and maybe a similar uh, type of laughter happening among the men around the table. Um you know, for something, a ridiculous request like that. And then, of course, uh, our our answer, our, our, I guess, getting told off uh, was also done by Renlin telling us that we don't know about her and we can't ask about her. And, you know, I don't, it's just interesting to me with the Heavenly Mother talk that he said we shouldn't ask or we can't ask or we can't get these things. When with this conference, he's got a different story of someone asking him to pray about something. And he's just like, no, I don't even have to do that. I just kind of feel like. I, I have to say, that is, that is so, so good. You brought that out. And in fact, Elder Renlin in the note, he does specifically state that when God has already given revelation about something and circumstances hasn't changed, you don't need to ask again. You don't, you don't ask again, if God's already spoken on the matter. And, and I, I brought this up to Elder Bednar in our earlier transcript when we talk about garments, for example. And I said, well, at the time, right, I, uh, members were trying to change the garments or things. And the brethren were like, absolutely not. These cannot be alterated. They cannot be mutilated. These are the this exact pattern from Joseph Smith. They cannot be changed. So they wouldn't even ask about it. And it wasn't until there was so much social pressure. They're like, oh, we... We better ask about this. And then voila, there was change. And, and you could say the same thing about, um, you know, the, the plural marriage ending. I mean, John Taylor received the revelation. This cannot change, you know, and so on. And then it wasn't until the very end. It's like, okay, we better pray about this, you know. And then the, the 1978 priesthood, you know, no, this can't, this can't change. We, we had that on so many accounts that it cannot change. And then, okay, now it can change. Um, and then. God hasn't said anything about heavenly mother nor has he said not to ask as far as i know he, he's actually said to ask i mean in all the scriptures that that is right that statement is the antith is is antithetical to the entire church that i grew up believing like that's almost why i started realizing i don't believe as all this stuff so literally because i realized i had made the church and a god in my own image after my after my own likeness and so to speak you know not not what it really was. And I saw this great chasm in this. And that's a good example because God says, ask about these things. I mean, Joe Smith started this whole restoration by asking, right? Um, yeah, I, so I, I agree. And, and the, the one thing, just going back to the epistemology, I don't know if it was clear in the conversation I had, but to other Bednar, I said that if you haven't had any spiritual experiences that are any different than any other experiences that other people are talking about, then how can you be so certain that this is true? 
And I, and I really, and, and he didn't have an answer for that, right? He just went back to, we have the keys, we have the authority. And this is critical because so often uh, I, we hear in general conference and, and many talks, and I, I've even given the same, where it's like, hey, those people who, who have these doubts, who, who, who are lacking faith, um, if you don't have that testimony, just trust in me because I know. I know that this is true. And it's said so powerful. And so all these other intellectual people or, or, or just who are, you know, I guess have a, high, a higher level of, um, how do you say, um, epistemological humility, epistemic humility, so, so to speak, right? They're going to say, okay, I admit that I have doubts. Maybe I could be conflating my feelings or something. But this Elder Holland or, or this apostle or the Elder Cook, he knows. He must have had experiences that are so certain, that are so true, that I can just trust on them. But now we learn very clearly that they haven't had any experiences different than any of us or what anybody else claims to be. And so that really puts it back to it's all just this epistemology. It's all about feelings. There's nothing concrete that you can lay there. Right. And when you back uh, Elder Bednar up against the wall and all he has is um, we have the authority and we have the keys. What the question that comes to my mind immediately in this context is, so how do you know that? Right. And then that's when he says we have two minutes left. Oh, yeah. Got to yeah. wrap this one up. Um, right, so many times. Bring up a I'm couple questions um, from the, or just like, I guess some comments and some questions. Um, real quick. Sorry, this one isn't about Tyler. This, this one I just want to pull up. Uh, this was about my comment about being called hysterical. Um, and uh, basically, I, I thought this was kind of dismissive, so I wanted to address it. Imagine that women being more emotional than men. Definitely not a thing. Let's bury our heads in the sand. So I just wanted to point it out um, that um, being called hysterical or when, uh, when someone is deliberately trying to discredit a woman because of her emotion, it's, it's to discredit um, and distract from her argument. A woman can be sad and angry and be showing all kinds of emotion and still be right about something. Um, but the fact that women are... Uh, more emotional than men, generally speaking, that that is a known thing. So I'm not I'm not denying that at all. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not right or that they shouldn't be listened to or that that's an OK thing to uh, go after when a woman is trying to make a point and is upset when she's saying it. So um, that was that real quick. It's um, an ad hominem argument. Yeah, it, it is. Well, actually, Maven, it's interesting because it actually might mean that women can be more right. When, when people have a brain injury, for example, and they are unable to feel emotions and they're just very logical, the Spock brain, they can't make a decision. They, they don't know that they, they can be so wrong and they end up losing their family, losing all this stuff. They make terrible decisions because they don't have that emotions. And so it's very yeah. interesting. So, so actually, um, we, we, th there's a reason that women should be involved in councils and in every part of society. And, 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 and part of that, empathy. you know, hey, yeah, they have emotions. So yes, use them because I mean, they have, we could go on a whole psychology research. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, so say, amazing. Men how have emotions too. It's just not always shown on the front. So like, I, and I don't, I don't right. think you were, you were meaning to say this, but I, I think it is known or, you know, when we look at decision-making, decision-making is done by emotions period, for people, for, for human beings. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the logical uh, reasonings we put to it are all, post talk, they all come after the fact. Um, and so I know a lot of people like, like women are emotional and men are logical um, when really it's men and human beings are emotional. And um, 
women show it on the surface more and men like to pretend more that the post hoc logic is the reason behind their decisions and that they're not just as, um, you know, as, as sorry, motivated by emotion. But, my... Yeah. Go ahead. That, that was it. I'm sorry. I did. I, I cut you off, Tyler. Sorry. And might women do that might at least in part that be due to patriarchy and all of the factors that come into not feeling heard and not having a voice in the room. Oh, I, I think so. I, that's when I, whenever I have been the most upset and, and, and like unable, cause I hate to cry, especially if, if something's important to me and I'm, I'm trying to make a point because that's also in my mind that I, I'm not going to be taken seriously if I cannot keep it together. Um, but if, if I am not able to, um, or the times, like the times that I've really lost it have been the times that I am feeling most powerless. I am not feeling listened to. Um, and that, that is a kind of a generalization, but, um, and I never realized that before you said that bill, when I am confident and I know I'm going to be heard, I might get a little bit if I'm talking about something sad, but the times that I, I cannot hold it back, uh, are very disempowering times. I can think of that's, that's what I can think of. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. But we did have just a couple more questions about Bednar that I think Tyler can answer. Um, so I wanted to um, put this one up, and then I assume, Bill, we probably have some callers ready. We got um, one in the queue. Oh, okay. All right. So let's go. So this one was... Uh, While you're doing that really quick, let me just say the number. So I got to wait for it to spin back around here. And it's um, a lot of sixes and some sevens. It is. Yeah, it's 662, it's 667, 6667. So 662 Mormons with an S on the end, or 662, 667. 6667. And by the way, there's also a question that someone had raised, and I, I thought it was a bit impertinent, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there any truth to the rumor that you and Elder Bednar have the same barber? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> that was a very rude question. I want to chastise the person who put that up there and the, yeah, whoever that was. But I thought this was a good question. Um, wanting to know about uh, Bednar's body language. Um, well, yeah, and they did ask what tactics you use to open things up. And I think you did talk about that a little bit before, but but yeah. Yeah, I talked about it before, but but briefly, um, you know, he he uh I mean he he he's a very nice guy. I mean they they all are, right? I mean you don't get to be in the common apostle without having some sort of charisma or personality or something like that. So 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 there is that. But I think part of the difference is that when there's such a differential of authority then sometimes the actual personality can be lost. And so I didn't get a chance to really get a feel for his true personality, you know, as, as kind of a peer-to-peer um, -peer basis. Um, you know, but, but I felt like during the time there was this level of you know, skepticism about me, you know, probably from his spirit of discernment, he could you know, wonder where, where, what direction am I trying to take this conversation, right? Um, but, but in terms of how, how could I, um, tactics, uh, kind of a, a negative connotation, you know, to open him up, just that I wanted him to feel comfortable, you know? And so, like I said, anytime that the conversation, um, we started talking about things that I could tell, maybe he didn't have a lot of knowledge about, then I wanted to, you know, change the conversation or I didn't want to, you know, um, I didn't want to go into a debate with him and, 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 and get the spirit of contention going because as soon as you feel that, then, then you feel like, oh, this, the devil is here down. and yeah. all of this. I want to avoid all of that at all costs. I just wanted to get his uh, reflection on things. And so even that's why sometimes when I said something, I felt a little bit of, of discontent. I would offer an apologetic response that, that might soothe things over and see if he would, you know, see that as an acceptable 
uh, you know, way of thinking, or maybe he has something to offer about it. So that's, that's kind he of, he may not helpful. be doing that again. Yeah, <laughs> no, probably. Not. I think he's still walking funny after that encounter. Also, also, um, Elder Bednar's got himself in a bit of a pickle recently with this plagiarism thing involving using ideas unattributed mostly to a very obscure fringe Christian leader of about 400 people. He since passed away. His name is John O. Reed in his latest conference talk. And, you know, I couldn't help but think about the conversation that you had with Elder Bednar, where he seems to be so not knowledgeable, I'll put it that way, of so many aspects of church history. And all I could think of when I saw him give the conference talk is, why are you as an apostle studying the writings of obscure religious fundamentalist sectarian groups instead of your own history? Because obviously you need to spend some more time on Mormonism. Let me ask a quick question, which is if he didn't write his talk and we hear rumors that they don't write all, they don't all write their own talks. If he didn't write his talk, let's just hypothetically, would it be easier for them to admit someone else wrote the talk or easier to just apologize for plagiarizing? Nothing. Neither. Yeah, that, that would be a false dichotomy. Yeah, that's not a, that's not an either or, or a both and that's a neither nor. My hunch is, my hunch is he didn't write that talk because I don't think Elder Bednar is reading the sermons of other people in obscure places. I think somebody else wrote that talk and they plagiarized. And the last thing a prophet, seer, and revelator can admit to is they don't write their own talks. And that someone is um, probably looking for a job. They don't, they're not writing anymore. That's for sure as hell, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go ahead to the first caller because we can we can always um, – there's just one more question um, and we can bring that out later. So – we want to go ahead and take you want to go to calls. Yeah. What do you guys think? Okay. Absolutely. I, we'll, we'll do three. We'll do three calls and we'll we'll call it a night here. So, by the way, before we do phone calls, uh, folks, I've been saying this for a few months. Donations are down. Like again, we're we're in a little bit of a recession. I think as far as the country goes, um, for folks who are out there who don't donate, if there's any way that you could possibly say like, hey, this show means a lot to me. I get a lot of value. I I tune in all the time. Uh, you know, I listen to to either Mormonism Live or other shows under the umbrella, please go to mormonismlive.org or Mormon discussion, uh, mormondiscussions.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and click the donate button and send us uh, send us a few bucks a month. Again, we've got you know three of us here every week. We, we bring guests on like Tyler. Uh, we talk about historical issues, I think, in a way that no other show does. We're going to do another one next week. Um, I'm just going to just put this up on the screen really quick uh, just to give people a little teaser. So there's a show next week that we'll end up doing. And uh, folks, like we spend a lot of time researching and, and delving into these things. If, uh, if, if you could help us kind of get back to having a good year, uh, if you wouldn't mind donating a few bucks, set up a recurring payment. Uh, if you do want to do a one-time payment, just to the right on your screen, there should be a donate button on the YouTube uh, video. Uh, otherwise, you can, again can go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button. Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month helps out a bunch. But I've seen you guys, I've probably seen 10 recurring donations drop off and haven't seen a new one probably in about a week or so. And and that's strange for what we do here. So I'm just going to say that and uh, we'll go to the phone calls. Uh, first call, I don't have a name, uh, but the person said they'll be ready. So uh, who was on the line here? Uh, Colby Reddish. Colby, how are you doing today? 
I'm good. How are you? Awesome. You are on the show, my friend. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. Great. Well, hey, I wanted to call in and thank Tyler for doing these two episodes. And a lot of the comments about epistemological humility that you hit on, Bill, that Tyler hit on, really connected with me tonight. And a few weeks ago, I was looking at the first edition of Mormon Doctrine. And I want to just, I don't have a question. I just want to read a few paragraphs from McConkie's 1958 preface, because I think it just shows really, really highlights some of the things you were both saying. So McConkie starts by saying, this work on Mormon doctrine is unique. The first book of its kind ever published. It is the first major attempt to digest, explain, and analyze all of the important doctrines of the kingdom. It is the first extensive compendium of the whole gospel, the first attempt to publish an encyclopedic commentary covering the whole field of revealed religion. True, there are many Bible commentaries, dictionaries, and encyclopedias, but they all abound in apostate sectarian notions. Also, there are many sound gospel te- texts on special subjects, but never before has there been a comprehensive attempt been made to define and outline in a brief manner all of the basic principles of salvation in a brief manner, or I'm sorry, and to do it from the perspective of all revelation, both ancient and modern. This work on Mormon doctrine, this is person seeking salvation to gain that knowledge of God and his laws without which they cannot hope for inheritance in the celestial city. I just wanted to read that because it just really hits on two things you mentioned. First, the complete lack of humility and almost like acquired narcissistic personality disorder that these leaders pick up. I think Tyler was talking about that, and it's absolutely true. I think the second thing is, now that we see the plagiarism of talk from sectarian preachers, and we know that when McConkie wrote this in 1958, we had no idea about Joseph Smith borrowing from a Bible commentary from Adam Clark that, you know, according according to McConkie himself says, abounds in apostate sectarian notions. It just shows how easily these men, because of their overconfidence, are are you know hoisted on their own petard. So I just wanted to share that because and, and praise you guys for the good episode. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks. Thanks, Colby. I tell you, that's the kind of stuff you're supposed to have somebody else write in your introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Nepotism and narcissism. Yeah, well we talked about how he had a lack of you know, we talked about how he had a lack of human so I'm sure he couldn't find anyone else to write that for him. Yeah. And I would say I I believe with the I believe that about the That's Mormon cool. doctrine and the book. Like I I really took all that in and I couldn't when I was younger I didn't see any of the you know I mean if you're right you're right you know so like I guess I just didn't see a reason why people would need to be humble about it. I guess if you, if you've got the answers, then you should be saying outright, you've got the answers. And I guess that's how McConkie felt. But you better sure as hell be talking to Jesus. Yeah. Back in the late seventies, when I joined the church, just in case anybody doesn't know Mormon doctrine, the book Mormon doctrine was treated as the fifth standard work in the LDS church. Actually the first standard work, the others were distant because every time any virtually anybody gave a talk in sacrament meeting, They were given a subject to talk about, right? And they go home, they pick up their copy of Mormon Doctrine, which seems like everybody had. They bring it to church. Boom. I was asked to talk about faith. 
oh, let's see what Mormon doctrine says about faith. And then they would start reading directly from Mormon doctrine. It was, I'll just say right now, I don't know if any more influential book in Mormonism, at least in the last half of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I mean, the only one would be the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith, which which is like a, a distant second. But I mean, Mormon doctrine was the one. And it's interesting because Bruce R. McConkie, he's also said, he said, talking about plagiarism, and that goes back to the, the founders, right? I mean, Joseph Smith, you know, Adam, the Adam Bible commentary, and then we have all the other examples in the Book of Mormon. This is just something that, that has been going on in the church since day one. And I remember uh, Elder McConkie had made a statement such something like, he will never quote, he, he says something like, I will, I will not quote somebody else word for word unless I can't say it better myself. And so otherwise, in other words, he just takes and plagiarizes, and that's, that's literally what it is, plagiarizes somebody else's idea and puts it off as his own. And he's, he also said <clears throat> that these are his words because the Spirit testifieth to him that they're true. And so when the Spirit testifies to him they're true, they become his words. So anything he says are his original work. And that, that's another thing of, of showing that, this, that, that he's getting around plagiarism. So I would be curious, with this historical record, if we were to go to Mormon doctrine and actually do an analysis on how much plagiarism actually took place from all the other books that are out there, I think we would um, not be surprised. Mm. All right, you guys ready for the next call? Oh yeah. Okay, so we got two more callers. Uh, this maybe is Nick. Nick, is that you? Hello, Nick. Nick going once, going twice. All right, I'm going to return him to the queue. We'll give him a shot here in just a second. Um, hello, is this Nick? That's not going to work either. Let's try one more thing. In the meantime, this is something Trevor asked earlier um, about showing respect. Um, why do you feel the leaders of the church should be shown respect when they've been disrespectful? One for second, decades? TFM. Oh, that's a great question. Well, first off, I believe that everybody deserves respect j just from being human. And I and I want to show the same level of respect that I, I hope to get from them back. And so there's that level that has nothing to do with Elder Bednar or anybody else. And then when it comes to Elder Bednar specifically, well, we have to remember that he, he, he was still an important figure in my life for a very long time. And, and, and I said this, that on the one hand, I have a, a, a great level of respect and admiration for him. Um, I, I, and then on the other hand, when I've learned and deconstructed a lot of things, I can feel certain levels of disrespect or even contempt for, for him and others. And the same can be said for, for, for Bruce and McConkie and, of course, Joseph Smith. I mean, there's no one in my life that I probably love and hate more than this man. Um, so yeah. I think it's, it's it, again, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive, you know, to respect and disrespect. Tyler, I'm sorry. Did you say there's nobody in your life that you hate and love more than Elder Bednar? Uh, Joseph Smith. Oh, Joseph Smith. Okay, but still. Oh, I'm just saying, and maybe that's being a little facetious, a little bit, you know, hyperbole, just to get to the point that I have read 
everything that Joseph Smith has mm. ever written. And I mean, I eat it up. I mean, even now I can read the King Follett sermon and some of his quotes, and I love it. I literally really enjoy a lot of his his teaching. And it, it just, it's a feeling in my brain. It, it's kind of like, you know, taking a hit of something. I bet if I was in the fMRI unit, you would see my brain light up when I read his talk. So there's there's a drug effect going on. So I'm just saying I've, I've had that experience with Joseph Smith and his writings. But I also see some of the things that he did um, that has been covered extensively. And, and that turns my stomach as well, right? And so- or covered up extensively. He, <laughs> or yes, exactly. So I, I, that's what I'm saying. It, it's not black and white. And 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 I and I yeah. um, anyway. Yeah, truth is made manifest in proving contraries. Right? Like I that that I I love certain things that come come out of you know that mind that also did a lot of harmful things. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from that. Okay, cool. All right, let's. Uh, here's the other caller. I don't. I got like TFM. Is that the? Is that the name? Uh, no, it's TFM. Say that again. T is in Paul. PFM. Uh, PFM. Gotcha. I thought maybe you were saying Tiankum or something. Okay, so PFM. You're on yeah, the. No. You're on Mormonism Live, my friend. Yeah. What's your What's on your mind? Hey, uh, you guys are doing a great job um, discussing. How do we know? if uh what we're uh, learning or believing in is true so i guess in the, in the mormon faith uh, we have what is known as a prophet and i kind of wanted to throw it out there either tyler or rfm is there a um, definition of what a prophet is in mormon theology that goes beyond prophet seer and revelator that uh, we could flesh out here do you guys know of what that definition would be i do i do these guys do i do i know it's the one obvious thing that the church refuses to acknowledge is that a prophet is one who prophesies duh so they change that definition to make it anything other than prophecy because they don't seem to have that in their bag of tricks what do you think anyone else I was thinking there was an apologist. I wonder if it was Patrick Mason. I, I don't remember which apologist it was. It might have been Patrick Mason on um or or maybe even Bennett, possibly. Um, but was basically when this was brought up, what the job of the uh, apostles and prophets are, it was basically, yeah, just kind of a it was basically managing and leading the church. Like they described it like a, a corporate thing and and I just thought it was a really interesting answer to the question that we're not expecting them to actually be prophets or, you know, like you said, RFM to prophesy or to see or to reveal anything really, um, or even expound on theology. We don't even expect them to be base level theologians. Uh, We just expect them to wear suits and sit in an office basically and keep things going until Jesus comes. But they are special witnesses for the name of Christ. There you go. Yeah, I, no I, I was I was gonna say the same. You know, I grew up believing in the definition that we learn about in the scriptures, in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and that is 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 a prophet I can get behind because that's some pretty amazing stuff. It just turns out historically, when you when you evaluate the evidence and then you come to a conclusion of what the definition of a prophet is, you are only left with a prophet in this church is the person who we call the prophet. 
And that's about as far as we goes. They're the ones who we say has the keys or the authority or, or so on. And, and to your point, Maven, it's very interesting. Our prophets are not theologians. They're none of this. And that's why people will resort to plagiarizing other pastors and other theologians and other people. L look at the talks. My, my favorite general conference, look at the talks. Go through and look at the references. And you'll notice they're quoting all the other people, even Elder Renland. You know, he's quoting another view. He, he, he is citing, so at least he's not plagiarizing, but he's citing a BYU professor um, about Nephi and, and, and trying to describe some of the story that Nephi did. And he gives a little reference, a little note, because he's, and he's quoting another scholar. And, and it's, again, it's just interesting that all the prophets, seers, and revelators, they are not, they're not theologians. They're not scholars. They're not into this stuff. And so they're resorting they're to, yeah, they're not, they're, they're resorting to, you know, when you listen to, to, to general conference, and I, I started noticing this many years ago, that it's almost like every time that a really good spiritual message, something that was cognitively and spiritually stimulating that I was really excited about, I really liked. They were quoting somebody else. They were quoting C.S. Lewis, right? They were quoting somebody else. Nothing, hardly anything is their original, unless it's some simple meme like, you know, Elder Erkdorf's, you know, uh, a two-sermon talk, you know, stop it, you know, or, or something like this, right? But, but nothing of the profound, deep insight that we used to have back in the days of Joseph Smith. And that's why I, I really still, to this day, enjoy, can enjoy some of that stuff. But it's interesting we've kind of lost that. Um, with the prophets. Hey, can I add something here? And I'm pretty sure this is true. Okay. So I'm not vouching for this, but this is a memory of over 40 years ago when I was in Japan and we talked about prophets. It's a big selling point for the church. And the word for prophet in Japanese is yogensha. Yogensha, each of them with a different kanji. And my recollection is, and I'm pretty sure about this, is that what it means is someone who prophesies, which is what a prophet does. Yogincha means someone who sees the future. But what the LDS church did was they took the same, they took different kanji, three different kanji that have the same pronunciation. Yogincha, but now it just means somebody who talks for God or a spokesperson or something like that. So if my recollection is correct, they changed the kanji for the word yogensha. By the way, this is a common thing. There's lots of uh, kanji, Chinese characters that Japanese use that have the same pronunciations. Okay. And it depends upon the context as to what you understand. But I think it was the LDS church that took yogensha and changed it from the Japanese way of writing it for one who predicts the future to simply one who talks on behalf of God. That's clever. They were able to do that. Um, yeah, I didn't. Uh, kanji was difficult for me, and I didn't actually get into church kanji, so I didn't ever actually see that they did that. Um, but yeah, I think, and that is something that can be kind of confusing if people aren't familiar with the writing system. Um, but I did remember, like, just as an example, there's a word that means friend, and um, it's tomodachi. It's a different word um, my friend was talking about that was in a lyric uh, of a song. And depending on what the base symbol was used for it, it could mean either a platonic friend or it could mean something more than that. And that the in this lyric, in the written version of the lyric, it was deliberately spelled out with the phonetic alphabet. So they didn't have to choose a character. So it could be left up to the listener to decide. But I think my favorite church thing about Japan is what the um, 
how the Bible, how that is pronounced um, in English. Um, I'm sure you recall RFM. I think oh, no, Seisho we were... was the Japanese word for Bible, but are you talking oh, about how they were talking? Calling it? Oh, okay. Seisho. Seisho? Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, anybody I, out I there know, from now Japan I'm who watches myself, the show. Right? But I thought, I thought the Bible is called Satan. Oh, or am I just like, not mixing Satan. that up? I'm pretty sure. Anyway. Yeah. Wakaranai. Mm. Nihongo. <laughs> <laughs> Shirishima Henyo. <laughs> That's actually funny. I was just thinking. I think it was Seisho. I think the Seiten part may be a faith demoting rumor. Maybe. Almost but... Shiloh. Are you thinking of the deal that Ed Decker brought up? Was that Mormon in Chinese means gates of hell? Mm -mm. Okay. No. I don't believe anything Ed Decker says, but let's. Uh, Sorry. Um, all right. Final caller here. So we've got uh, Diamond Dude on the phone. Diamond Dude, you're on Mormonism Live. What's your thoughts tonight? So it's uh, Diamond Dude. And two thoughts. Uh, the first is a question for Tyler. It, it's uh, between the two discussions that you've had, the first with Elder Bednar and the second on Mormonism Live tonight, which one was the most spiritually uplifting? Not to paint me into a corner, but if I'm going to be as transparent as I know how to be, I'm trying to paint me into a corner here. And the second is, when can we expect to hear more from you? Because I've quite enjoyed this series. Wow. Well, well thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it's a very interesting question. And I think it de depends on the definition of the spiritual uplifting. And I, right now, I define spiritual upliftment of something that is stimulating, cognitively and spiritually stimulating. So when I go to Sunday school or something and we're hearing the exact same thing all the time and they're hitting all the buzzwords, I, I feel no spiritual edification. So as you can imagine, this discussion with these fabulous people, Naven, RFM, and Bill Real, um, who, who know so much about history and know exactly where I'm coming from, yes, this is as a higher level of spiritual edification and gratification even than the conversation with other Bednar, because I feel like with this conversation, we're trying to get to the truth. We're trying to understand the situation. Where we are open to sharing different ideas, opposing ideas. We go back to the first episode, and I often would push back on different things that I I felt like you know we could give more nuance there. I I, I couldn't. I never felt comfortable doing that with Elder Bednar, and I don't like being in those positions where I I don't feel comfortable debating or sharing my true feelings or thoughts. So um, by those definitions, then yes, uh, this would be more spiritual, spiritually uplifting. Good answer. Good answer. All right. Thanks, caller. Um, the last question for Tyler <laughs> um, was from Flatpat. Uh, he wants to be your wingman sometime. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> oh, man, that, that, that'd be great. Of course. Um, you know, I, I just, I just, I, this is, we're just going back a little bit, but I think this is important to bring out with the spiritual epistemology thing and 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 what Elder Renlund was saying about um, Hiram Page and the Seer Stone, um, they, they were getting confused between the Holy Ghost 
And Elder Brendan's like, you know, in their own feelings and a false spirit. The scripture, it says this. It says, go tell Hiram. He says, tell him that those things which he hath written from the stone are not of me, and that Satan deceiveth him. And to me, that's a huge issue. When we're not saying we're conflating feelings between our own feelings and that of the Holy Ghost, we're conflating feelings of Satan, of the evil adversary and the Holy Ghost. And apparently we can't even distinguish those feelings. Um, I just wanted to put that out there because I think that's that's crazy how far away we are from reality. Very good. So I'm about ready to wrap this baby up. What do you think, everyone? Oh, yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, Is Tyler, this the record then, RFM, for like the longest RF, R, longest Mormonism live? The first one was. This is nowhere near it. That's where well, I'm calling I, well, it. I guess together, right? Holy cow. Oh, yeah. This is multiple. This is a two-parter. So definitely you've got that, uh, that record. You've got the record of the most popular one. We'll see if the second part equals or exceeds the first part in popularity, which I'm measuring in terms of views on YouTube, by the way. But I want to thank you, Tyler, very much for coming on again, sharing with us your conversation with Elder Bednar and also your other thoughts and insights on it. Maven, you're great as always. I appreciate all that you have to say and everything you do behind the scenes that makes this program work. And Bill, it's good to have you back. And I'm glad we took a vote to accept you back. I love it. Thanks for welcoming me back into full fellowship. You are very welcome. I extend my right hand, my good friend. Until next time. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you to all the listeners. I've, I very much enjoyed the, the, the audience and everybody. So I, I really appreciate all their comments and support. Well, thank you. we got a great audience. There's no doubt about that. Until next week, thanks, everybody, and good night. All right.